How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one good scare. Well, hello and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys telling you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. I am another host, Justin Bishop. And I'm writer-comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Hey, Todd. Yes, you are. Hey, Gary. Happy Halloween, guys. Hey, guys. <laughs> is it Halloween time already? It is Hall- Halloween uh. is, is, is upon us. So this week on this episode of the show, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, normally, we, we just ended our John Waters series. Normally, after we end a long series like that, we do a little roulette episode, you know, where we, we pick up uh, a movie at random. We're not doing that this week. Uh, this is going to be a special episode. It's not part of a longer series. It's not a roulette episode. Uh, we're going to just, I'm kind of considering this the Cinema Shock Halloween special. Uh, so this is our this is our very own Treehouse of Horror. Uh, How fun! But, so, you know, what I would consider Cinema Shock to be a film history podcast. Would you agree with that? You know, oh, yeah. it, although it is one that fo- pri- primarily focuses on, uh, as, as Gary's intro says, cult and genre films. And while this is not primarily a horror podcast, it's actually been a while since we've we've talked about a horror movie, hasn't it? I think it's... the last one was probably. I mean, you could consider Stepfather. That was back in July. Yeah, that's dra- horror, horror dra- adjacent. Drag me to hell. We did back in January. <laughs> yeah, so it's been like ten months, and we yeah, you know, like uh, you know, I mean, or at least what 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 was July three months ago? Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, the stepfather, I guess you could put as a horror horror film, but Drag Me to Hell. I mean, all the Sam Raimi stuff obviously is, but uh, I still think it would, it's safe to say, you know, even because we reference horror a lot, even though we're not a horror movie podcast per se. Right. Uh, so I I think it's safe to say that horror is probably our favorite genre. Well, for at least two of us, one of us is not a horror guy. I think, yeah, right? Gary. <laughs> <laughs> no man i'm just sitting around thinking like do i have to start my old horror podcast to talk about a horror movie again <laughs> it's been a while so we're getting to a john carpenter series one of these years we'll, yeah. we'll get to it one at some point eventually that's just a <laughs> monumental like career to tackle so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that's true. uh but anyway over the years we have touched on some foundational horror films you know the, those types of movies that change the genre forever your your night of the living dead first episode ever on this podcast night of the living dead uh we've done texas chainsaw massacre alien you know we've done a lot of, of a lot of like what people would consider essential building blocks of the horror genre but the movie we're discussing today is quite literally one of the foundations of the genre a film that shaped the very fabric of the horror genre and has done so for over a century today we are talking about F.W. Murnau, seminal vampire film, Nosferatu.
Gary, I'm going to be very impressed if you are able to find a trailer that has dialogue to put it <laughs> in a world <laughs> where nobody can hear me. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, where from there is no spoiler, except that a woman without sin should cause the vampire to forget the first cock. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. Crow. The first cock crow. <laughs> Never forget the first cock. Yeah. yeah how, you couldn't. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> That'll stick with you. Yeah. <laughs> and it should be pointed out that like, while we have touched on a lot of horror movies, we've never touched on a horror movie without consent. So I, wow. I, I, I I'm, I'm proud of us guys. <laughs> Writer, comedian, Todd A. Davis. Yep. <laughs> I don't think you get to like, I feel like that that should just be natural, Todd. Like you don't get to be proud of yourself that you've never touched one without consent. Well, I'm just, should, I'm that just should say- just, that's expected. Yeah. That's yeah. Like that's, baseline. That's what bottom, bottom line. No, I'm saying yeah. we do. I can't speak for other podcasts out there. I don't know what they've <laughs> put out or how they've conducted themselves, but we always do it with consent. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for yeah. specifying that. Yeah, no problem. Available for parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate events. <laughs> well, released in 1922, Nosferatu is one of the, of the earliest examples of a horror film, but it certainly is not the first. Uh, horror has been part of the movies practically since the medium was invented, uh, with the pioneering cinematic magician George Méliès directing a film called House of the Devil in 1896. Uh, if you guys haven't watched it, I would highly recommend it. It's on YouTube. I'll probably... Maybe we'll throw it up on Instagram or something. It's only four minutes long, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hey, it, this is 1896. They weren't making uh, cinematic, like, you know, Big, ethics, ethics quite yet. Yeah. <laughs> they quite were yet. they were for our times. They get it done TikTok style. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, right? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Weird it out. You get the point. <laughs> well, Nosferatu, in fact, is not even technically the first vampire movie. Uh, there were two other unauthorized adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula. They were released in two the two years before Nosferatu. One was made in Russia and one in Hungary, although both of them have been lost to history, making Nosferatu the oldest surviving vampire film, even if its survival was not always certain. You know, vampires have been around before that and like movies, like you said, like not even just Dracula, like uh, there was a there was a film called The Vampire in 1913, uh, directed by uh, Robert Vignola. But but the vampires then were not like blood sucking, living dead things. These vamps, they were like female seductresses. Uh, right in a, in a lot of these things uh i think that that particular one was based on a po- uh, or, or inspired by a poem by rudyard kipling called oh. the vampire and yeah uh, i mean even bram stoker's dracula was not like the first piece of fiction to involve vampires i mean it, it obviously was the it, it became the the most well-known one but he was drawing on a uh, literature that came out before he was born when when he wrote Dracula, you know, wow. uh, obviously he popularized it, although Dracula was not like a huge bestseller when it came out. But we don't have time to get into the history of Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, or we'll never get through this uh, episode. I just thought it was a fun fact. Just it an is interesting a fun fact to know that there, was, there were vamps before yeah. Dracula out there. Absolutely. And, you know, although it wasn't a financial success during its initial release, Nosferatu has gone on to become known as one of the most important films of all time. Not just horror films, but just one of the most important films of all time. Uh, A key moment in the history of not only horror, but of cinema itself. 
And Nosferatu's journey to the screen began, uh, technically kind of began in a, in, during World War I, when a German soldier by the name of Albin Grau, uh, who we will talk more about here in a second, but he was told a story by a Serbian farmer one night as they sat around a campfire. The story told was that the farmer's father had been transformed into a vampire. Before this wretched war, it see it sounds like it sounds like Schwarzenegger. Sorry. Every yeah, it's I mean he is Austrian, so it's pretty pretty close. <laughs> do I just do Schwarzenegger? <laughs> All right, here we go, here we go, here we go. <clears throat> Before this war, I was over in Romania. You can laugh about this superstition, but I swear to I swear on the mother of God that I myself knew that horrible thing of seeing an undead. Yes, an undead or Nosferatu, as vampires are known over there. Only in books have you heard those strange and disturbing creatures spoken about, and you smile at these old wives' tales. But it's here, where we're at in the Balkans, that one finds the cradle of those vampires. We've been pursued and tormented by those monsters forever. <laughs> There's something about it being an Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, accent that makes it sound much less scary than let's say if it were a Werner <laughs> really Herzog. Like if Werner <laughs> Herzog were doing that, we've been pursued and tormented. Like he's very, you know, intense and quiet, that quiet intensity that and and Schwarzenegger just sounds like a goob. You know? So so that that story would have been imagine imagine what Todd just did, but in a in a a, a Werner Herzog. Only only good. Better. <laughs> but being told around a, t- a campfire in the middle I, of yeah, right in the middle of a I, war, like I was literally <laughs> thinking the same thing. Yeah, around that would be fire. scary. But but if it's just Arnold over there telling the story, <laughs> now it is highly likely that this this story was a uh, complete fabrication uh, made up by Grau during the promotion of Nosferatu. But it still makes for a pretty good story. Uh, and according to Grau. That story that he was told set him on the path to create a film about a vampire. That film, by the way, uh, it's called a Serbian film. And you can <laughs> find that streaming right now. You should check it out. Immediately. Uh, or or not, from what I've heard. I've never seen it. <laughs> I've never seen it. Everyone tells me not to. But you know That's what? That's how that is... I am, too. But you know what? When people tell me I not to that's just like we we talk about this on the show all the time gary when someone tries to censor a film it makes you more curious about it and because everyone tells me not to watch a serbian film that 100 guarantees that i am going to watch that movie exactly. <laughs> that's just that's just how it works i gotta see what you're talking about anyway in the aftermath of world war one germany was in shambles and its economy was collapsing and, and along with that came the collapse of traditional values which led to the country's avant-garde arts movement kind of exploding including expressionistic painting whose visual style would have a huge impact on german cinema this post-war period also led to a major occult revival in germany of which albin grau who was a lifelong occultist was a leading figure See, by the 1920s, Alban Grau had become associated with Germany's most influential occultist guru, a guy named Heinrich Tranker, who had cobbled together his own religion of sorts called Pansophie, uh, using facets of theosophy, Freemasonry, and other kind of esoteric magical systems. And then in 1921, Tranker was approached by the Ordo Templi Orientis, or the OTO, 
uh, and he was asked to join, and he would actually later become the OTO Grand Master of Germany, which led him to entering a correspondence with the OTO's most famous member, the Grand Master of the, U- the U.S. and the U.K., uh, a guy by the name of Aleister Crowley, whom the British press dubbed the most evil man alive, the great beast Aleister Crowley, the most famous Satanist. Uh, like of all time basically black, black sabbath has that has that song right like, mr crowley yeah mr crowley yep yeah yep that's who they're talking about uh so there, there's a lot more history here uh i'm not gonna get into that because this isn't a podcast about the oto and we could talk for two hours about all of this stuff because it's it, it, incredibly interesting but that organization would later split crowley essentially uh, assumed control of the organization. He he basically committed a coup, uh, took over it, and made his own self-created occult system, the Lima, their guiding philosophy. Yeah, seriously though, it's it's it gets intense. Like the more you read about it, like it's wow, incredibly this... interesting. Yeah, he's like a lifelong student of this uh, fraternita Satur- Saturni, and uh, he's they, they nailed him. Out. Yeah, I'm sure that was right. <laughs> uh, they named him like a uh, master. Pacatius, and uh he ends up kind of leading the thing until there's the the veda conference and mm-hmm. crowley and tronker kind of split off and there's a huge like sounds like warlock civil war it's basically a civil and, war and and alban growl sided with heinrich tranker who was his his sort of mentor in this so basically they they split and he chose sides and he didn't choose alistair crowley's side yeah, kind of badass. And since we're cool. not even gonna, yeah, not since we're not gonna discuss it here. According to some sources too, like like he ends up like going in like World War II. He ends up dying in a concentration camp, and then there's stories about him not actually dying that he like fought his way out and escaped, and then he ended up surviving in Sweden until like the seventies or something. Like yeah, that. I, I I read that he escaped to Sweden during the war because yeah. obviously he was a. Uh, I think Albert was Alvin Grau Jewish. I can't remember. I've got it in my notes somewhere, but I can't remember off the top of my head. But yeah, that's what I read that he fled Germany during the war before the Nazis, while the Nazis were rising to power. But that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you get when you're a, a fucking warlock or some shit, right? You get all <laughs> kinds of legends about you. Yeah, I mean, the, and, the appeal. And the reason I bring I bring this stuff up for a couple of reasons. One. It's it's fucking cool. It's a cool fucking story, right? Uh, that the, the, one of the guys who brought Nosferatu to life was like a, a legit occultist, right? But also, the second reason is when he began to develop the film, this film that was you know inspired by this vampire story, supposedly, Alban Grau, along with a producer named Enrico Diekman, formed, they formed a production company called Prana Film with the sole intention of creating films that dealt with the occult and the supernatural. And also, another reason is Grau, he, he really instilled the film with a lot of mystical undertones that were informed by his studies of the occult. So because in, in addition to spearheading the creation of the film, Alvin Grau also served as its main visual stylist and production designer. And many of his designs incorporated occult symbolism. You see it in the film, the most obvious of which is this real estate contact contract that Orlock and uh, Knock exchange. Uh, it's because uh, there's a like a close up of it in the film and you see that it's filled with all this uh, hermetic and alchemical symbols and uh, words written in like the Enochian language and all kinds of other stuff that's that's closely associated with the occult. There are other uh, instances as well, but most of them are kind of in the background. Like uh, you, there's one up on the on the wall behind, uh, in, at one point towards the beginning of the film. But that real estate contract, I mean, they they really like zoom in on that, you know, mm. so you can see it pretty clearly. I, I have a question about like 
something you mentioned, Alvin Grau also serving as the main visual stylist, the production designer for the film. Yeah. Like films of this period, I mean, when we watch the credits, there's a handful of people that they list. I'm sure a lot of people that worked on it didn't get listed in the credits, but like were people generally pulling like double duty and like, was it more of a skeleton crew with, you know, films of this era? I don't really know. I, I don't know enough about the production of a lot of silent films to be able to like really answer that question. What I do know is that Nosferatu was a pretty low budget movie, mm. uh, even for the time, even for silent films like this was a it was pretty tightly budgeted. So yeah. that may have had something to do with it. Albin Grau, though, he you know, he is credited as I think the I think in the credits, he's, it's either production designer or like art director or something along those lines. Right. But he, he did serve in a bigger role. I mean, he is the one who got the film made. He hired the director. He hired the, the writer. Like he essentially, even though he's not listed as such in the credits, but he is the producer of this film. Right. Like he, okay. he is the, he's the boss basically, nice. you know? Um, And I don't know how common that was, or if it was unique to this because of his background, like he created, I, I'm going to post this stuff on like our Instagram and things like that, but he created posters for this. He created essentially, they, they didn't call them this, but storyboards. Like he created illustrations of scenes in the movie that were recreated on film almost exactly as he drew them. Wow. Uh, he, he created the look of the, the vampire, you know, he, he was one of the auteurs of this film oh. without a doubt. That's cool. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. So once it was decided that Prana Film's first project would be a vampire story, uh, Diekman and Growl, they hired a writer named Henrik Galeen to write a screenplay based on Bram Stoker's 1897 novel Dracula. Despite the fact that Prana never obtained the rights to adapt Dracula into a film, a fact that uh, will come to haunt them down the line. So Henrik Galeen, like many others in this story, was a very influential figure in Germany's expressionistic period during the silent era. Not much is known of his early life, but in the years before the First World War, he became an assistant to Max Reinhardt, who was a leading figure in Germany's theater scene. Now, without going down too deep of a rabbit hole, Max Reinhardt's influence on Nosferatu it, it cannot be understated. Even though he had no hand in the film's creation, he is not involved in the creation of Nosferatu at all. But Reinhardt, uh, he was an actor, a theater director, and a theatrical producer who is considered one of the German stage's most prominent figures of this time. He was a big deal. Like he was, he was famous. He was a he was a leading figure in the the German theater. Later in life, he would actually become an acting teacher for the likes of Marlene Dietrich and even Clint Eastwood studied under him. Wow. But he has connections to nearly everyone involved in Nosferatu's production, from its main actors to its director. It's it's wild. It's like you could play two degrees of, of Max Reinhardt in this with almost all of the main figures in, in Nosferatu. So Henrik Galeen, he, he began his career as an actor. But by the time he was hired to write Nosferatu, he'd been writing screenplays for nearly a decade. In 1914, he wrote, directed, and acted in, or I should say co-directed, and acted in a film called The Golem, which is the first of several depictions of the figure from Jewish folklore. Uh, while this version of The Golem is lost, uh, it's, it's, it's lost to history, another version, which is widely available even today, it's pretty, I mean, you can probably find it on YouTube right now if you wanted to, was released in 1920, and that was also written by Galeen. 
In writing Nosferatu, Galeen made several changes from Bram Stoker's novel, including, of course, all the characters' names. Uh, all the characters' names are different. Uh, and he changed or removed several plot points from the book, although the final product is still very easily recognizable as a telling of the Dracula story. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's read Dracula or seen any adaptation of Dracula will have no issues recognizing that that's what this is, even if you didn't know ahead of time. I don't think we're going to mention it. It's just kind of sad when you read about Galeen, too, that like he uh, he apparently had to flee Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot, a lot know, of folks involved under, in this did. Yeah, and then uh, I think he came to America, but rather than finding any success over here, I think he just was kind of faded into obscurity uh, yeah. instead. It was just kind of a bummer considering. So yeah, I mean, considering what he had contributed. Well, once his uh, screenplay was completed... All Grau needed was a director, and he turned to a guy named F.W. Murnau, who he'd met during the production of Murnau's film Journey into the Night in 1920. Galeen had worked as a as an illustrator on that. I think he I think he created some of like the the promotional posters and things like that. He he had seen Murnau work and really liked his style and thought he would be a good fit for this. So he uh, he approached him about directing what would become Nosferatu. So F.W. Murnau was born Friedrich Wilhelm Plumpe. In 1888, uh, he was born into a well-to-do family. Uh, Murnau was a precocious kid. That seems to be a running thing with a lot of these directors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who was naturally drawn to the arts, uh, much to his father's chagrin. His father did not want him becoming like an actor or involved in the arts in any way. I think he wanted him to be a doctor or something, of you know, that old story. Mm. But uh, even as a child, he was drawn to performance and he put on puppet shows for friends and family, which is oh, something God. else we keep that keeps coming up. <laughs> like John Waters, Alejandro Jodorowsky, like all these guys are put on puppet shows when they were kids. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's pretty nuts. And 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 for I guess it was this theater interest and I mean the rumored uh situation of him being a homosexual that like I think he it wasn't rumored. His, it was he was he was he, he was pretty straightforward. Yeah, it was not rumored. He uh, uh he he was people saw fair, him fucking dudes yeah but he was, he was pretty open about his sexuality <laughs> yeah, as open as you could be in nineteen when I was gonna say because like everything I read acted like he was kind of like still kind of keeping that under wraps a little bit but well like, but he, among his like people he knew that he was close to it was an open secret let's say mm. yeah well his family was not cool with that so that's no. that's how he ended up changing that name uh, if anybody's wondering yeah well yeah his his it was basically came to a falling out with his father. And I don't think he ended up ever speaking to his father again after a certain point. Uh, and the name Murnau came from a place that he would like, like a place where he would go camping and stuff. It was a, another little, I don't know if it was an actual town or a community or whatever, but that's, he took the name from this place where he felt he would go with his friend Hans, who was his lifelong friend. Hans uh, is also known. Most scholars consider him the, to be um, basically the love of F.W. Murnau's life. Uh, it was, he was his lover and Hans was unfortunately killed during the war. Mm. And I don't think FW Murnau really ever got over that. Well, wow, this is a real bubber of a story. Yeah. <laughs> All of this kind of, kind of making uh, me sad here. Yeah. There, there are sad moments to the, to FW Murnau's story, but, uh, but before all that in college, he studied art history. Uh, which his father also did not like. Uh, he was also very involved in the university's theater program. And it was there, working in the theater program, where he would, you know, he would act out in plays and stuff in the university. It was there that he caught the attention of a prominent theater director named Max Reinhardt. 
Oh, we've heard of him. Yeah. So Reinhardt invited Murdoch to attend his acting school, which is like, that's like a big deal to be invited to this guy's acting school. So he must have been really good. But uh, World War One put a bit of a hold on Murnau's promising career as an actor. Yeah, it ruined a lot of weekends. Yeah, so at the start of the war, Murnau enlisted and he served in the German army, uh, soon was promoted to officer, and would eventually join the Imperial German Flying Corps, where he spent two years flying missions in northern France. These were not like bombing missions. This was He did reconnaissance uh, missions. And he survived eight crashes during the war without ever sustaining any severe injuries. Jeez. Not real good at recod. <laughs> <laughs> Get us a closer look, Bernal. Not that, Not close. that close. Not that close. Uh, you, oh, you wanted me to bring the plane back. Oh, sorry. That well, was not that was not in the mission brief. The uh, the last of these crashes, and a lot of people speculate that this last crash was on purpose. Like a lot of a lot of people speculate that this was him sort of quietly defecting. Uh, it landed him in Switzerland, and in Switzerland he was arrested and he was in prison for the remainder of the war. But this imprisonment seemed kind of nice. Like it seemed like it pretty chill because they uh, they let him continue to act and put on plays in prison like he started a theater troupe in prison and at one point the swiss government launched a competition for the best production of a drama called uh, marignano which is this sort of like national production of switzerland uh so they held this product th this contest to see who would put on the best version of this play and uh, the inmates at the internment camp where he was imprisoned were eligible to compete and Murnau's production won first prize in all of Switzerland while wow. while in prison. Jeez. Yeah. So he also started writing screenplays while in prison. This is a, this is where he first started working on screenplays for film. So uh, just as a quick little side note, talking about uh, inmates acting in plays, did you got did either of you guys happen to see the 2005 documentary Shakespeare Behind Bars? I did not, but I have heard the um, this American Life story that it, that inspired it. I I have I or had uh, a copy of it. It is it is really fascinating. Yeah, the, I would the, like to see it because that story is really cool. Yeah, just I mean, just just real briefly, the big kind of hook for it is they put on a play and everyone was cast based on the crimes that led them to be in that prison it is a fascinating look at life behind bars and these individuals with you know troubled pasts you know putting themselves into something and making something beautiful it's it's a really fascinating story highly highly recommend it i for one am fascinated with that just the the connection again to one of our previous series with john waters and female trouble and you know obviously Mr. Waters would have been uh, getting right along with uh, Bernal, I feel like, mm. maybe, for lots of reasons. But, you know, this time I was just thinking about the, the prison thing. They both, you know, they, maybe they'd have been in prison. Well, after the war, Murnau returned to Germany and founded an independent production company with the actor Konrad Veidt. Konrad Veidt, a uh, very famous German actor of the time. He's in uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is probably the most well-known thing that he's he's known for now. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, but their first production, Murnau's directorial debut, was called The Boy in Blue, released in 1919. So over the next couple of years, Murnau would direct 10 films, several of which were supernaturally tinged, such as there's one called Satanus. Uh, the Head of Janus was one of them, which was an unauthorized adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And The Haunted Castle, which I assume is about a haunted castle. But by the time he was hired for Nosferatu, he had already established himself as an experienced and well-regarded director in Germany. Uh, this was not Bernal's first ripoff. 
1920, he lifted that Jekyll and Hyde story. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, it was ripping off Dracula was not like his idea. Uh, in fact, I don't know that he was aware that it was unauthorized when he was filming it. Um, cause what I, some of the reading I've done indicated that even, even Heinrich Galeen, who the screenwriter was under the impression that Prana film had obtained the rights to do this, hmm. but it's hard to say, it's hard to say who knew what, I mean, obviously, uh, Alvin Growl knew that they had not obtained the rights to it. <laughs> Growl. All right. So we've got a director on board. We've got our screenplay. We're ready to roll on this, but we've got to have a cast, right? So in the role of Thomas Hutter, which is the character who is, it's Jonathan Harker from the novel. That's, that's that version, the Keanu Reeves character. Oh, oh okay. Okay. <laughs> Keanu right. Reeves character. Uh, Murnau cast an actor named Gustav von Wangenheim, who was another student of Max Reinhardt. Uh, Ellen Hutter, which is the film stand-in for Mina. Uh, that's Winona Ryder's character, by the way. Gotcha. Okay. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's played by Greta Schroeder, who was married to film director Paul Wagner, who was another big, he was a big director in the German Expressionism movement. He directed that 1920 version of The Golem that we mentioned earlier, uh, which Schroeder also appeared in. Well, the film's Renfield figure, Knock, or I, I heard one one uh, Nosferatu scholar, I guess you'd call him, call him Kanak, Kanak, which maybe is a German pronunciation i don't know you kept saying that during our live show but i refuse to accept it but that's i mean (laughs) these guys know a lot more about uh nosferatu than i do so i assume that their pronunciation is correct (laughs) so kanak is (laughs) what we can go with uh so anyway he was played by an actor named alexander grenache grenache had uh you might be surprised to know been a student of max reinhardt nosferatu's version of van helsing is a character named professor bulwer played by jonathan got got out how do you how would you say that gary how would you say that name i got think it. you got it got, got out? out sure got I, out see i would probably get go out got out get out how are you how would you say it todd uh i well i was i was gonna go longer on the o's so like go goat. goat that sounds goat. worse i don't know <laughs> we're probably all wrong yes but got out had also worked with paul wegner and yes he worked for max reinhardt and his years as a character actor on the german stage so what are we up to like five people or something so yeah. far that have worked with this guy he was uh, the brother-in-law of galid did you say that already no did i didn't i, I did not up? i don't think i knew that yeah he was the brother-in-law of hedrick galid how about that wow yeah. small world Small yeah, Germany. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. And of course, in the role of Count Orlock or Graf Orlock himself was the unforgettable Max Schreck. Now, there have been many rumors about Max Schreck over the years. One is that he didn't actually exist and that Max Schreck was a pseudonym for another actor. Uh, and the fact that Schreck's last name translates to like terror, the word terror, his name is Max Terror. Uh, that probably helped fuel this rumor. It, so- it sounds like a stage name, right? But it's not. It's it, it was, it was, yeah. The most famous and ludicrous rumor was that Shrek was, in fact, an actual vampire that Murnau had found during his travels in the Carpathian Mountains. Uh, which, of course, but inspired. we all know he's really just a harmless ogre who lives <laughs> yeah. in the forest. Of course, that that <laughs> rumor inspired you know, Shadow of the Vampire later on, which is a, a movie where about the filming of Nosferatu, where Max Shrek is an actual vampire. But this this story, of course, is bullshit. Like Max Shrek has a long, well documented history as an actor, but before and after Nosferatu, and he, like all actors uh, of this 
time period, began his career on stage. Guess whose theater troupe he was a member of? I'm thinking somebody from the actor's studio. Yeah. You want to guess which one? Uh, uh, It's Max Max Reinhardt. Max fucking Reinhardt. (laughs) Another one. Oh, look at that. I was only halfway joking about it, by the way, walking through the forest. That was apparently a big uh, hobby of his. Well, yeah, he was. The thing is, like, Max Shrek was kind of a weird dude yeah. like in the, <laughs> he was kind of a weird dude and he played a lot of weird characters throughout his career none as weird as this one but he was kind of known to be like kind of standoffish and just an kind of an oddball guy which led to him being able to play darker characters very very well like lana del rey yeah i i hear a lot of comparisons between lana del rey and max shrek actually <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say that uh, his wife was named Fanny. So Fanny Shrek. Uh, Ooh, Fanny Terror. Is, <laughs> you know, so he's got a do lot not, of his do own. Not you don't need Google, to... Do not Google Fanny Terror. <laughs> I'm just saying you don't need to make up stories about this guy. He's got plenty all on his own. By the way, still super famous now, especially uh, after our live show, Nosferatu, I've learned this even more. Super, super popular uh, character actor uh, because of SpongeBob SquarePants. Right. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he has appeared multiple. I think if only he could get residuals for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Todd. Yes. This is normally the part where we ask about Star Trek, but mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> considering that uh, this movie came out 40 some odd years before Star Trek debuted, um, yeah. I'm, I'm going to guess this is a swing and a miss right here. Uh, you know, yeah, it's uh, most of the actors were long dead, uh, actually, <laughs> like at least a decade or two, most of them three or four decades uh, before Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future would debut in 1966. But I did see that uh Greta Schroeder who plays who plays Ellen lived to 1980 so she could have been in Star Trek had she not stopped working in 1954 oh good so she at least could have watched Star Trek yeah exactly and Star Wars Uh, yeah so there's nobody in Star Trek but I mean that might have that's too bad yeah, escape the Nazis and get to see the peaceful future. Would have been it would have been kind of cool to see her like pop up in the salt vampire episode of uh, the original series. That would have been fun. Yeah, or to meet Jean Luc Picard, who looks like Nosferatu, like looks yeah. like Cadorak. <laughs> that is disrespectful to Sir Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Disrespectful. Uh, so filming on Nosferatu began in the summer of 1921 with Fritz Arno Wagner as the shoot uh, Wagner. I guess it's Wagner. I'm not used to saying my Wagner. Wagner. Yeah. Wagner, Wagner. As the yeah. shoots cameraman. So Wagner would become known as one of Germany's most acclaimed cinematographers of this period, specializing in the type of dark moody lighting that characterized the expressionist movement. He had previously worked with Murnau on the haunted castle and the burning soil. And he would also work with Fritz Lang, uh, on four features, including M, which is one of my all-time favorite movies, if you haven't seen it, uh, and The Testament of Dr. Mabusa, which is another really fantastic film. I saw that he that, that Fritz Lang actually spoke at his funeral later, too, so that makes yeah. sense. I did not catch that, but that's that's interesting. So. Yeah, yeah, they they worked together quite quite a bit. Did he work, uh, did he work on Metropolis? I don't think he worked on Metropolis. He worked a little bit later, because like M is... M was Fritz Lang's, or Fritz Long, I think is the actual pronunciation, but M is his first sound film. 
Uh, so I think he worked on it uh, like later, later on in Fritz, Fritz Lung's career, maybe even after he came to America, but well, yeah, M, M was no M, M is still in German. So, but it was, it was still later on. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. And a spoiler alert, uh, Bernal dies. Yeah, yes, he does. He's not, he is not 150 <laughs> years old. <laughs> so, well, the, uh, the shoot began with location photography in the town of uh, Lubbock, which provided several, I wanted to say Lubbock. Well, that's a town in Texas, though. They, they did not <laughs> film this in Lubbock. <laughs> Let's go to Luke and Buck, Germany. <laughs> so, uh, but Lubeck provided several important exterior locations, including Hutter's house and the sinister-looking building across the way that will catch the eye of Count Orlog. This building was actually a salt storehouse. Uh, built to store salt that was mined nearby, and then it would be like carted off to other places. And it actually is still there. That building is still there and still looks pretty much exactly the same as it did then. Wow. Yeah. Uh, by the way, there, there's a lot. We're going to mention uh, several shooting locations, but there are there's a lot of location photography in this, which is highly unusual for for silent films in Germany at this time. Most films were shot on sets. Now that that was actually a budgetary thing. Like I mentioned before, this was a low budget film. So is that it was cheaper to shoot on location than to build sets specifically for the film. I mean they did they did build sets, which we'll get to, but they didn't build as many as a lot of productions at this time would have. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to actually mention that in a minute that that you know it's kind of cool that like most of German expressionist films especially are like known for like highly stylized sets and that yeah. sort of thing especially and, like the the doctor the cabinet of dr calgary is is the big, biggest example of that where the sets are highly stylized the way that they're uh painted the way they're, they're constructed uh it's completely unnatural completely like askew uh and that is like kind of the ultimate german expressionist film in my opinion yeah, and and then so that's what they're known as. So this was like kind of unique that Murnau is doing all this like outdoor photography with everything. Yeah, I mean Murnau is. I don't. I don't think Murnau would be considered a an expressionist filmmaker. I think that there are definitely there is definitely a lot of expressionism in Nosferatu specifically, but not in in necessarily in his other films. Uh, he's a very he's much more of the like German romanticism kind of uh aesthetic but they're you know but the influence of alvin Grau does come through in some of the expressionistic touches in this film uh, especially in some of the indoor scenes like the scene with kanak where he's on his his chair when we first meet him he's on this chair that's like way too tall on a table that's way too tall like it, it doesn't make any sense at all and it comes that comes directly from an alvin Grau illustration uh so like moments like that are very expressionistic and there are a lot of interior moments that are and I, so I would consider Nosferatu an expressionist film, probably, but I would not consider F.W. Murnau an expressionist filmmaker. Mm. You know, out, so you think outside it was by of accident film. that he was doing this, or no? I mean, I he think it was necessarily by with... accident. Yeah, he is. He's he's doing what's right for the story. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, but but he doesn't feel the need to do that with every story. Like some of the the only other one of his I've seen. I've seen bits and pieces of Faust, but I've seen Sunrise. Uh, which we'll, we'll talk about later on, but that movie is not remotely expressionist. So they moved from Lubeck to uh, a town called Wismar, which is a port town where the iconic image of the death ship silent glide into town is filmed. One of the most haunting images in the entire film yeah. was filmed there in Wismar. From there, the production moved to Prague 
and Poprad before moving on to their most atmospheric location, which was the semi-ruined castle of Oravsky Podzemok, which serves as the exterior of Orlok's lair in the film. It's it's a insane looking location, honestly. Yeah. And during these outdoor scenes, people from uh, the nearby village, they would often visit the shoot. These these uh, people there in, in the Czech Republic, they would visit and they would kind of offer to clean up things around set, do little kind of menial tasks around the set, hoping to get paid a little bit of extra money for helping out. Uh, but none of these people would go anywhere near Max Shrek because they were terrified by his appearance, even in broad daylight. <laughs> he looks pretty fucking great. So yeah. he does. He, he looks great. And the, the I, I'm not entirely sure who did like the makeup effects on it. I know it was designed by Alvin Grau. I don't know if Alvin Grau applied it or not, you know. Uh, I, I couldn't find any documentation that said who was responsible for. It. But one thing that I did notice, because I've you know over the last couple of weeks I've watched this like four times, I think. Uh, there's there's a thing with his hands, yeah, with with yeah. Count Warlock's hands where his fingers get longer as the movie goes on and more claw like. So in yeah. like the earlier scenes, like where he's got this little hat on and he's sort of trying to pass for like a normal guy, <laughs> like his fingers <laughs> look a little little more normal. But by the time he's on the boat. And you've got that amazing scene where he's like over the the hatch, you know, where he's his claws are out to the side. Like he's got these long like talons on his fingers. Like his his hands turn like gradually as he gains more power throughout the film, he becomes more animal like in appearance. Yeah, yeah. which is something I didn't notice in, in, on previous watches, but because I've seen this over and over the last few weeks, uh, it's something that stood out to me. Is it's like and and then I looked it up and it was intentional. Like they actually built longer fingers on him as the as the shoot went on i was gonna say if you didn't have any evidence of that i still totally buy that that was a uh a choice by oh, yeah. the filmmakers because it, yeah. there's a lot i feel like in this movie that these guys were ahead of their time with yeah with thinking through some of this stuff for sure absolutely absolutely i mentioned that you know they they, they would see these villagers would see or count orlock or max shrek and while they were filming outside well they filmed all those scenes like i said in broad daylight they filmed pretty much all of the outdoor scenes in this in broad daylight because the film stock that was used at this time wasn't sensitive enough to shoot at night outdoors. You could do, you could shoot indoors because then you can blast lights, right? But outdoors, they didn't, they didn't have the technology to do it. So the effect of nighttime would be achieved in the edit by tinting all of the nighttime scenes blue, uh, which is something that up until maybe a decade ago, most copies of Nosferatu that were in circulation were just fully black and white. But that would be very confusing when it gets to those final scenes where he uh, gets killed by daylight you know, at the end of the movie. Because you've, if you've only watched the black and white untinted version of this, it looks like he's walking around in daylight the whole movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we get to like somebody needs a nap, I don't even remember if I saved some of these. I hope I did. I, I don't know. But anyway, some people were very bitchy about and he's walking around at daytime and he's like right. moving caskets and stuff. And like, I guess it's supposed to be night and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, you obviously watched like one version. Right. Exactly. exactly. The, yeah. The versions, because I watched it twice before our live event and both of those were fully black and white. So when we got to the live event and Justin, you had the copy that you had, I was blown away. I was yeah, like, it's, it's a vastly different crap. experience. Yeah. It looks yeah. so good. It really does. <laughs> It really does. That Eureka restoration is phenomenal. Is that like, still is that, is that still available? Yeah, it's from a, it's an Australian import though, so you'd have to. Um, it's a it's a Region B Blu-ray that I have, uh, so you would have to have a Region Three player 
Uh, actually, it's a region B Blu-ray. <laughs> hey, so. listen, it is. I'm just saying, I don't want anyone to, out, to go out and buy it and then not be able to play it. Right, yeah. right. So, because if you don't have a region free player, that's what's going to happen. So there's got to be versions of this on streaming. I feel like that, that I, have the... I, every version that I've looked up has been the black and white version. Yeah, yeah. On, on, on streaming services, I, I think that when Shutter had it. I think that they had the the tinted one, like when Joe Bob did it. Yeah, I was um, going to say. I feel like I saw that version with Joe. I think Bob that was, but it's, it's as of this there. recording, it's not currently on there. Mm-mm. So, well, with all the exterior shots in the can, the production returned to Berlin, where most of the film's interiors were shot on studio sets. And in creating the the look of the sets, Albin Grau was inspired by the sights that they had seen during their journey to Prague and back. Uh, for example, the arch doorway that you see Orlock comes through. He, he, come, he comes through a lot of arches in this film, which is a very like coffin-like shape for him to walk through, yeah, right? Yeah. But the, the the shape of that like arch doorway, when we see first see him like fully, when we first see him bald and everything, and he comes through with his arms kind of like down by his side, it's very creepy. Mm. Uh, but that doorway was based on one that they had seen in Prague, you know, and, and he took note of that and he recreated it on set. Now, there aren't a lot of records uh, of what happened during the several, several weeks where they were filming those interiors. However, an interview with a guy named Robert Hurth, who was an art director who worked with Murnau several times, including on The Last Laugh, uh, which was filmed just two years after Nosferatu. It's, it's kind of considered another one of Murnau's masterpieces, The Last Laugh. He described Murnau's working method. And I want to read this because I do think that it gives some insight into how Murnau worked as a director, even though this guy's referencing a, a, a different film than Nosferatu. So he says, when I entered the studio, I was very much surprised at how quiet it was. For in the days of silent films, it was the custom to build sets while the shoot was actually going on, while there was usually a crowd of people talking at the tops of their voices, people who were simply there out of curiosity and had nothing to do with the actual shooting. But there was no one to be seen but the cameraman and one of the actors, Alfred Abel. Uh, Alfred Abel, by the way, is the guy who it is when those rumors of um, that Max Schreck was actually the pseudonym of another actor. It's Alfred Abel is the is the one that that was rumored to because he had also worked with Murnau later on. So anyway, but there was no one to be seen but the cameraman and one of the actors, Alfred Abel, and also standing in the dark, out of the way, a tall, slim gentleman in a white white work coat, issuing directions in a very low voice. This was Murnau. Like that does that paints a picture, doesn't it? Like that that quote, you just see him like very methodically shooting. You know, he he goes on to describe Murnau as a calm, courteous director uh, who created great morale on set. Nothing like the character that John Malkovich plays in Shadow of the Vampire. Uh, he was apparently nothing like that at all. But uh, Hurl will go on to sum up Murnau with these words. He says. I have never known anyone who enjoyed the strange business of filmmaking so much as Murnau, although he took his work intensely seriously. For him, work itself was kind of an intoxication. He was fascinated and gripped by the actual processes, carried away in spite of himself, like a scientist performing an experiment in a laboratory or a surgeon during a complicated operation. So once filming and editing was completed, the final element in the production was to create a musical score. Murnau enlisted a composer named Hans Erdmann for the job. Now, not much is known about Hans Erdmann. Uh, Nosferatu was his first of only three films that he's credited on. That doesn't necessarily mean these are the only three that he worked on. Uh, they didn't have IMDb and stuff back then, so I don't know how great the record keeping was on things like this, you know. But another of the films that he, he the, the other most well-known film that he's credited on is Fritz Lang's 
the testament of Dr. Mabusa. But this wasn't wholly uncommon in the silent era. Music for these films was performed live in the theater. I mean, we all know this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, usually by a pianist or an organist, although in some larger cities, theaters would hire a small orchestra. But for early silent films, the music was either improvised or compiled of classic repertory music. They weren't writing music directly for the film. Nosferatu was actually one of the first, one of the earliest silent films to have a, a specially commissioned orchestral score, something that, of course, would become more commonplace in the following years, but it was not commonplace at the time. Alvin Grau himself presided over the film's press campaign, writing articles and sending his production drawings to the press, even designing the film's promotional posters. Uh, one of these posters, maybe one of the first examples of a teaser poster, simply had the word Nosferatu right in the middle, flanked by two large question marks, with the dot of each question mark being this uh, yin-yang logo of Prana Film. And during the promotion of the film, Grau, you know, he did a lot of interviews, like he was he was hustling, man. He he wrote, there's a great article he wrote called Vampires, which is where he recounts the story of the Serbian farmer, which Eureka actually included in the little booklet that comes with their, with their Blu-ray. It's, so it's really cool to read. Nice. Uh, but when he, in all these interviews, when he was promoting the film, he repeatedly boasted that he had made the first authentic occult film, which he probably had. So the first preview of Nosferatu was held in Berlin on March 4th, 1922. Uh, it was held at the Berlin, at the zoo of all places, but it was a big fancy zoo, right? This was like a big deal. Nice. Guess where it, it was a, it was a costume party. It was a uh, masquerade, I guess you would say, oh. where guests were asked to wear period costumes, like from the time period where Nosferatu is set. Uh, so it was, a, it was a masquerade. And the, then the public premiere was held 11 days later on March 15th, 1922. The advanced publicity for the film, which is also probably Grau's work by, by most accounts, was designed to provoke the potential audience. It almost like almost daring them to attend. Nosferatu, who cannot die. A billion fancies strike you when you hear the name. Nosferatu. Nosferatu. Does not die. You expected the first showing of this great work? Aren't you afraid? Bin must die. The legend has it that a vampire, Nosferatu, a dead, lives on men's blood. You want to see a symphony of horror? You may expect more. Be careful. Nosferatu is not just fun, not something to be taken lightly. Once more. Beware. It's so good. It's like some William Castle <laughs> shit, right? Like, <laughs> like we like we are daring you to come watch this movie. I love that. I think that's great. I think it's awesome. Mm. <laughs> no, that's I, I love I don't know. I love that the uh the Cardi is alive and well even then. You yeah, know? like yeah, the huckster. <laughs> like he's doing some huckster <laughs> shit. Mm. <laughs> well, it would soon be revealed that Prana Film had spent more on publicity than they had on the actual production of the film. Probably that big shindig they had at the Berlin Zoo, the big costume ball, that was a, a big part of that. Uh, and unfortunately, the film, when it came out, was not a financial success, although reviews in Germany were almost unanimously positive. However, it's been 100 years since this movie came out. <laughs> About 25 of those have involved the internet. Maybe 30. 
30, 30 years. The internet, I, I honest to God, don't know. Yeah. I mean, like wide use of the internet. <laughs> so there's been plenty of time for other people to uh, voice their opinions, Gary. So uh, did you happen to find anyone on the internet who didn't like this film? Weirdly enough, everybody loved Nosferatu. No! Nay! <laughs> much less, but much like the Nosferatu of your some folks need to go take a nap. <laughs> Count Orlock does need a nap, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Maybe that, that would solve he, everything. He, he he looked like he'd been staying up too late. Yeah. yeah. He, his his eyebrow his eyebrows need some TLC for sure. Jeez Louise. <laughs> Well, these range the spectrum, fellas. This is there's a, there's a lot of different reasons to hate this movie. Some we haven't even had a chance to cover. Some we won't. Uh, but uh, let's see. William Geckus over here with one out of five stars. I bought this for my sci-fi class. We read Bram Stoker, and the reward was supposed to be this film. It was like giving kids liver for dinner and rewarding them with canned spinach. Everyone was so disappointed. I kept waiting for it to get better, and it never did. The history of the film with the lawsuits is really interesting, and the clips you've seen are wonderfully scary with brilliant makeup. The problem is that there's a month's worth of boring between all the good stuff. Fast forward, or the students who expect CGI will fall asleep if they stay in class that long. Bella Lugosi is a much better bet. For a silent, Metropolis is much more compelling, even to those CG fans. Interesting take. <laughs> I yeah. have a feeling we're going to get a lot of like people who just think silent movies are boring. Mm. Oh, yeah. here's the thing: yeah. I think I think Metropolis is way more boring than this movie. Personally, Metropolis is also like two and a half hours long, isn't it? So it's like it is so, long. Yeah, it, yeah. I, I, I every like time it, I tried yeah, to watch Metropolis, yeah, every time I tried to watch Metropolis, I've been like, wow, this is a lot. I mean, yeah. it's cool, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it's it's a bit of a chore. It feels like you're doing homework. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I tried to, I think I tried to mix it up here. We'll see. Uh, Nick uh, gives it one out of five. Like this because the title is needs work. Like they're gonna, <laughs> let's, let's go back to the drawing board. Yeah, yeah, can we, can we, uh, can we round everybody dra- up? Let's yeah, round let's everybody up for, on this, a, uh, <laughs> for a redo. I see some potential here, but the plot leaves something to be desired. Also, I can totally see through that CGI. The green screen work was amateur at best. Also, where was the werewolf love interest? I thought this had a werewolf. The books were better. Was okay, he watching actually, Twilight? Is he watching yeah, Twilight? I was going to say, I think this guy was joking the whole time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Never mind. I'm sorry, Nick. You were right. The joke was ahead of me. <laughs> I've been watching the Twilight movies for the first time, by the way. Why? Oh, they got nothing on this. Why? Right? Be- yeah. uh, well, my 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 um, theme. They asked you why. I know why. This theme this Halloween is 31 days of vampire movies. That's why I'm watching 31 vampire movies, and I've never seen the Twilight movies. So I'm three in, two more left. We'll report back. Okay. Now you're getting to the good shit. Now you're going to be really just my favorite is the third one, honestly. I think David Slade's a good director. He elevates it a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. My favorite is the third. uh, But uh, what is it? Breaking Dawn. Breaking Dawn. Yeah. Part two is will make you happy it's like okay. watching a fast and the furious movie excellent <laughs> excited <laughs> you're just like what the fuck is this even happening? what what is happening now that's why i'm looking forward to it <laughs> one out of ten from give and take here uh this is an awful movie 
At times it was so boring I wanted to throw my TV out of the window. The guy's performance is a vampire is okay, but nothing to write home about. The camera work is atrocious. It's as if the moron of a director had a towel over half the camera the whole movie. The movie was maybe groundbreaking when it was released, but today it's boring and it's absolutely unwatchable. Awful acting, awful directing, badly dated, now stupid movie. Do yourself a favor and don't watch this movie. I'd rather sit through a marathon of Snoop Dogg movies than watch this one again. This movie was made in 1922, for heaven's sake. How could anybody possibly get any enjoyment out of something so old and primitive? Wow. Jeez. <laughs> that review went a lot of places. Like, yeah. It, was almost intelligent, then it was weird, then it was like, I don't know. Who talks about I'd rather watch a Snoop Dogg marathon and then which says, would be for what? heaven's sake. <laughs> what what is it? What would a Snoop Dogg marathon even involve other than bones? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he's done cameos. He, like, I'm pretty sure he has a yeah, and like half baked, right? Doesn't he have a cameo <laughs> right. in that? Like every famous stoner has a cameo in that movie. Didn't right? he recently <laughs> oh he recently did a, a vampire hunter movie with uh Jamie Foxx. Oh, yeah. Day he shift. is in yeah. that one. He is in yeah. Day shift. Yeah. yeah. James says uh, this movie's garbage. One star. There aren't many people alive who saw this movie when it came out, so people rating it high are just full of it. There's nothing groundbreaking or compelling about this, even at its time. Well, that's just an ignorant Hard disagree, statement. James. Yeah. <laughs> you can you cannot enjoy it, but saying that it's not groundbreaking, I mean, it, it literally... Like is, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's not even an argument. They dug up coffins. Yeah, can't they get a real vampire. That one star from Panda Pentium. Old movies are just over romanticized nostalgia trips. They're awful. The quality of this film in particular is just awful. I get it. It matches the time period, but we have better vampire movies out there. Old movies are awful. Quality's garbage. People go on nostalgia trips and refuse to acknowledge just how terrible the quality of the films are. I've seen handmade Halloween costumes that look better than any of the outfits in this movie. Just as bad as Night of the Living Dead, honestly. Oh, fuck Whoa. off. <laughs> <laughs> Someone just saying old movies and just such a broad statement. Old movies suck. Like what? What qualifies as old to you? You know? I don't know. Because like, guess what? Whether you like it or not, buddy, eventually the movies you're, you're watching old. right now are going to be old. The movies that, that you're enjoying are going to be considered old movies. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, ridicula, ridiculousness. 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 It's a TV show that airs 17 times that. a day. It's not that. TV. Warning, spoilers. I'm sorry, but this is awful. No offense to old movies. I like them personally. And no offense to Max Shrek, who did a really good job of portraying creepy vampire man. But Nosferatu sucked. After reading the book Dracula, which this was based, yes, it says in the opening credits that it's based on Dracula. I'm uh, absolutely appalled that this is hailed as a masterpiece of horror cinema. The exaggerated acting, while understandable, is annoying and really destroys that suspension of disbelief with the silly faces that only succeed in making you laugh. It truly mangles the book. Nita Harker becomes Nita Harker. Arthur, Lucy's husband, becomes simply Wester, Westendra. Huh. Lucy well, they, doesn't sleep. They probably watched a one with different inner titles or something. I was about to say, they definitely. Because yeah. there, there were, I mean, we're, I don't think we're really going to get into it, but there were a lot of different versions of this movie out there. And some of them just called it Dracula. Uh, like it had, it went under multiple different names. And some of the, inner, some of them, the inner titles, like the names were changed to like Jonathan Harker or you know, the, the names were changed to match the actual characters totally from. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's probably what they watched. 
I'm going to skip this because they're just like, this is this mangled the book. Okay. Well, okay. Well, yeah. Gross gross ass says gross uh, gross ass. (laughs) Half star. I didn't like the film. I honestly didn't know what was going on most of the time. I also took a nap on most of the parts because of how boring it was. Not only that, but it was creepy how Nosferatu, in parentheses, the vampire was just watching the man sleep. If you want to watch this film, I recommend not watching it at night, but during the day. So it scared him, but also bored him. (laughs) (laughs) This is my personal favorite review. This is from Jake, and it's a half star. It was actually from September 9th, 2023. So recently, shit was ass. (laughs) (laughs) To the point. (laughs) <laughs> uh lee gave an half star and said if i had paid to watch this shit in 1922 i would have burned the picture house to the ground i felt insanity brewing having to endure one hour and 20 minutes of this side note Mac shrek i was not familiar with your game you would have loved your spongebob cameo <laughs> <laughs> half star from highland fat fuck <laughs> 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 uh wait highland no i'm sorry it's highfield fat fuck oh I, man i, I apologize. thought it was highland i was gonna make you read it in a scottish accent if it was highland. i know i should have it's highfield <laughs> fat fuck I, I i think i was also uh wishing that upon it what if you're ever taking frankenstein for granted watch this two the ending is actually abysmal not that i actually care because so is the rest of the movie three can motherfuckers back then not read? Because the fucking text is up for like 20 plus seconds every time, even if it's just one to two sentences, which is almost every time. Probably the worst movie I've ever seen. Yeah! <laughs> All right. Uh, there oof. you go. There it is. <laughs> oh, we still got more. Jasmine, half star. So this is where the plot for Bram Stoker's Dracula came from. I don't prefer this subversion, to be honest. I don't tend to like silent movies, and I prefer Gary Oldman being a sexy vampire sometimes rather than the bug-eyed rat face <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> that person thinks that the Francis Ford Coppola movie is a remake of this. Is that what it is? Yeah. They don't and, know that uh, the book exists. And that Bram, yeah, I guess. And who's or maybe they do they not wonder who Bram Stoker is? Yeah, I don't know. That's <laughs> so weird. Uh, Curfee gave it one star, but says, Justin, you'll like this. Uh, Twilight did it better. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Maria with a half star who says, the longest hour and a half in my life. I didn't go to film school, so I couldn't even masturbate to it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I didn't go to film school and I had no problem masturbating to it. <laughs> and that's all the time we have on cinema shock thanks so much for joining us check us out online cinemashock.net oh man oh well i mean the reviews at the time though despite some of these what i assume are youngins who just can't appreciate an older film because based on what a lot of those said uh a lot of the almost all of the reviews in germany at the time of its release were like I said before, unanimously positive. I think there was one negative review uh, in all of the like major German publications, but uh, everyone else pretty much praised it. But unfortunately, good reviews in the absence of good box office did very little to fend off Prana Films' debts, and the company was taken into receivership by the Deutsche Amerikansch 
Film Union or the DAFU. Yes, that does just translate to German American <laughs> Film Union. <laughs> the fuck you. <laughs> uh, so it in, it enters into receivership by by the DAFU, and then Florence Stoker entered the story. Bum bum bum. <laughs> so Florence Stoker was, uh, of course, the widow of Dracula author Bram Stoker, who oh. died in 1912. Uh, Bram, Bram Stoker died in 1912, not Florence. She was still alive during the the rest of the oh, story. She had oh, a problem okay. with it. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, would have been a lot Dracula... freakier and more movie worthy if she <laughs> right. hadn't. If she had risen from the dead 20 years later. <laughs> that's so that's the... the sequel to Shadow of the Vampire is a dead, <laughs> dead Florence Stoker. Dead Florence Stoker coming yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> to haunt F.W. Murnau. <laughs> <laughs> So, although Dracula was not yet an international bestseller in 1921, it was one of the few Stoker works that had steadily remained in print since its publication, and its sales provided a modest but reliable income for Florence. I I will be the guy here that goes to bat a little bit for Florence because I feel like she's getting a bad rap in the story everywhere I read it. And uh, well, yeah. B- before you go on, I I agree. That I think that. A lot of the lore around Nosferatu paint her as someone who's like trying to kill this piece of art, but she had the legal rights to do what she did. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And before uh, 1912, when Brave Soaker died, died uh, he had been pretty careful from everything I read with like trying to copyright material or, mm-hmm. you know, at least being conscious of that. Uh, eight days before it was published in 1897, he even organized a reading of it and yeah. uh which was London. this like that was like kind of a weird way of like preserving a copyright or at least a lot of people thought it was in in this time period if you did like well, a live reading or something of it right yeah that that's true and but he also had this like secret dream apparently that it would become a stage play like he wanted to become this great work on stage uh so well, he worked, I mean, he he worked in a theater. He worked at the Lyceum Theater under Henry Irving. So he was a big stage guy, you know. Yeah, like that. well, and actually that's a great point because when he did this at the Lyceum Theater, uh, he was hoping that it would like start production on this thing. And his employer uh, was Sir Henry Irving, like you just said, and he wanted him to play the vampire mm-hmm. in in the stage play and after the reading irving was reported to have watched it and said this is dreadful yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. and so uh anyway so it was kind of a bummer for stoker but you know at least he he was trying to like preserve it but by like 1922 when all ever all this was going on uh florence had the rights to all this stuff but she was not like some wealthy lady based off this story the mm. novel was not like what dracula is now it was not yeah, like yeah. some sensation no like- no it was a it was reliable as like a back catalog title like you could go and get it it stayed in print it was by 1921 i think it was the only of stoker's novels that were still like that had stayed consistently in print the whole time mm. right so she wasn't like getting rich off of it. She was surviving <laughs> off of exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So about a month after Nosferatu's premiere in March of 1922, Stoker was sent a mysterious and unmarked letter that included the program from the premiere, 
That was that that big premiere that was at the zoo, right? Uh, the program brazenly stated that the movie was quote freely adapted from Bram Stoker's novel. <laughs> so they put it there uh, in the in the it's not in the film. Now I know one of one of the reviews I think that we read said that it was in the film. There were prints of the film later on in its life because this this movie has quite the the life over the years. Different prints, different versions, and there were some that said that, but. Originally, it did not say that on the film, but the program that they distributed at the premiere did say freely adapted from Bram Stoker's novel. Mm. So she retained legal representation from the British Incorporated Society of Authors and raised war on the film's producers. Uh, you see, she had caught wind of that big premiere in Berlin, which, like I said, it, it was it took place at the Berlin Zoo. It was this big costume party. They had a full orchestra playing the score there like it was a big production, a big deal. Uh, so in her mind, she's like, these guys have money to burn, right? Mm-hmm. They they spend all this money on this premiere. They must be loaded, and they're making money off of my husband's work, and I'm not seeing any of it. So it's understandable that she would be kind of pissed off about it. Yeah. But as we've already mentioned, they had burned through all of their money in the promotion of the film and were, in fact, flat broke. I mean, to the point where they've been taking under receivership from another organization. So Prana Film doesn't have any money. Prana Film doesn't basically exist at this point. Well, the Society of Authors were initially reluctant to help Florence, but she managed to annoy and pester them enough that in the summer of 1922, they hired a German lawyer for a case against Prana Film. Yeah, it was the idea that, like, I mean, I think for them, it was, from everything I read, it's just a legal challenge in a foreign country. It's risky. It's expensive. You don't want to deal with it. And she had also just, she had just become a member of the society of authors so a lot of the other members who had been paying dues for years and years and years and had never asked for like legal help from the society were kind of put off by someone who like she joined she joined them just to get them to help her with this so they kind of like had some resentment towards her for like joining and then immediately asking for help whereas they've been members for you know 10 years and we i've never asked for help and i pay my dues every year Mm. Right. And, uh, and and there there's a website, the Irish Times, they had a great interview with, uh, uh, I think his name was Dockery Stoker, mm-hmm. who is like the great grand nephew of Bram and Florence. And, uh, but yeah, that, I mean, they, they, they kind of said the same a quote from Dockery was just like, uh, Florence was a person of principle, just like Bram. And I think she knew that what was right was worth fighting for. She needed help. Uh, once they got to court, and she presented the case. It was simple. Dracula was under copyright. And as the author's widow, she was the rights holder. Prada film ripped her off. She deserved this. Yeah. I mean, and that that's 100% correct. <laughs> like yeah. they, did, yeah. they did rip her off. So this case went on for years. When it became clear that Stoker wasn't going to get any money from Prana or the DAFU, Florence kind of changed her strategy and began demanding that all copies and prints of Nosferatu be destroyed. And this was a battle that she actually won in July of 1925. So this is three years, three plus years after the movie premiered. A German judge ordered that all copies of the film be rounded up and incinerated. But by this time, again, three and a half years later, Nusferatu had plenty of time to get into circulation all over the world. Just for clarification, too, in that interview, they say and present that they said like Florence Stoker for the record, was not who requested that. They say that they have letters uh, that were specifically the lawyers. 
engaged by the Incorporated Society of Authors were the people who were requesting that all copies of this film be destroyed, that she did not say that, uh, that she just wanted compensation for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. Uh, supposedly, like they tried to argue they had approached her or something and she turned them down because they had kind of pitched it as like this, this uh, we'll do the same story, but like a rat thing is going to be the blood. Th- and she had turned <laughs> right. them down. Uh, they don't have any record that that actually happened. Mm. Uh, she did not cop to that or anything, but anyway, just to throw that out there again, too, gotta have it in writing. Nec- yeah. And, and we, we don't know necessarily, uh, apparently based on these people, she didn't even, say that they had to destroy everything she just wanted payment well and and from what i understand in my reading on this is that she didn't know she didn't know about nosferatu's existence until somebody sent her that program and i don't think she ever actually watched the film i think that she was just aware of it and knew that it was based on her story based on obviously everyone's account (laughs) if you've seen the movie and read the book then it's clear you know yeah right but thankfully for us, the film did survive. Uh, now, there is a much-repeated myth that only one copy survived, that it was smuggled out from under Florence Stoker's nose and taken overseas or whatever. But that is, you know, that makes for a good story, but it is far from the truth. Like I said, it was three years before they uh, they, they ordered it to be destroyed. So it's already, there are prints and negatives going all over the play, all over the world in circulation. So the film continued to screen under various titles in the year after it was ordered to be destroyed. It premiered in New York city in 1929, New York a, city. Odd. I think it's time you switch brands. <laughs> excellent throwback to a uh, commercial from 1993. Yeah, that has nothing to do with this at all. <laughs> uh, it became a particular favorite of the French surrealists in the 1930s, especially for Andre Breton, who we've talked about on the, podcast a lot during our Jodorowsky series he wrote about it multiple times you know I, I know we're not trying to dig so much into the history of Dracula but I just want to say I think it's worth mentioning here that one thing I thought was uh, cool about that especially from that interview with the Irish Times and some stuff I read uh that this legal debacle basically bro- drove Florence nuts like all she wanted to do uh, according to everything they had, was to make Bram Stoker's dream a reality. Uh, and she ended up in the middle of all of this. Uh, she actually had this actor named Hamilton Dean adapt the story into this traveling play. Like, he, I guess he pitched it and she finally was like, I need money and, I, and I'm and i dying over here. So fine, fuck it, take it and run with it. And so uh, she was she was broke in pocket and spirit. So she gave this guy the rights to run off with it in a play. Now, like if you look at Dracula and uh, and I read this so long ago, I don't even remember. But like Nosferatu and Dracula are different. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about that. But like Dracula was kind of uh, more aggressive and monster like. There was a, it, it's almost it's almost interesting because like Nosferatu has a little bit more of the like you start to see the human side evolve of him a little bit because Nosferatu, although he looks like, or, or sorry, Count Orlock, although he looks like that, s- wants to have the appearance of humanity, like right. tries to cover the ears, tries to. But unlike up- in, unlike in Dracula, his 
physical appearance doesn't change, doesn't transform. Right, right. And so, you know, they're trying to feed brother when he comes over, trying to make him feel at home. You he know, honestly just wants stuff. a friend. That's this is just this is a story about a man who just wants a friend. Right. <laughs> so this guy actually uh did the play, and this is where it started to get a little even more like human with Dracula, like a, a little more the Dracula you start to know. If you're wondering, by the way, uh she fucking hated the play. Um <laughs> and for good reason, I guess it was bad. And it was like apparently in London was like the laughing stock of critics. But you know what? It sold out every single night. It made money. Yeah. It appeared. Yeah. And then it started traveling around in the country and in the smaller areas. It was huge. It blew the place out. Huh. So somehow that play like transformed. Like it, it transformed the Dracula you're more familiar with today, which is what I was trying to say. It was like it was cheaper. So they got to, you know, to to do like a little dandy in a cape. And right. so they uh they they did that look for him and so uh it, it ignored a lot of the book but the bones were there and uh and yeah maybe florence got desperate she sold out to this guy but because of that play eventually another playwright saw it uh john balderston uh and he called this version the dean version uh quote illiterate uh <laughs> but he took it and he morphed some things around he kept the high society count Dracula. And then that version was adapted to a version that appeared on around Broadway, mm-hmm. eventually starring none other than the gentleman named Bella Lugosi, yep. who gave it that sexiest of sex, which went <laughs> right to Universal Studios, who didn't give a shit about what was going on in Berlin, who bought that thing for, I think I read $40,000, which was roughly around, you know, like half a million or over half a million a day, mm-hmm. which did lead to Florence being able to be comfortable on her way out. At least for uh, the last, so, I think she died in 1937. So she would have been alive for another six years after the film was released. Yeah. So wow. Dr. Stoker, uh, said that in the end he felt like it was a happy ending he said mm-hmm. uh nosferatu remains and florence got her money for the stage and the film rights but most importantly she set an important symbolic precedent every author artist and musician should thank mrs stoker for the precedent she helped set in this instance yeah yeah absolutely thanks. i mean and thanks and flo and this is a story <laughs> that we will probably continue one day when we do Todd Browning's Dracula, you know, like this, this is something that can lead into that one day uh, because the story does it, it. And Gary, you just, you just kind of touched on the, the bullet points, the Cliff's notes version of that, but it's a, uh, I mean, it's a hell of a story. Uh, the Dracula's road to the screen. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I, I think you could call Nosferatu probably the most widely known, certainly the most widely seen film of the silent era, uh, I, that, that sounds like hyperbole, but I think it might be true. I mean, there there are works by the likes of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton that might give it a run for its money to get that title. But I'd still be willing to bet that more people have seen Nosferatu than have seen, let's say, City Lights or The General, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I wanted to ask the two of you, what are your experiences because this is the first one we've discussed on the podcast. But what are your experiences with silent movies? Have you seen many of them? 
my, do you enjoy them? <laughs> my my most memorable viewing of a silent film, uh, which I, I appreciate silent films. Uh, so let's go ahead and put that out there. But my most memorable viewing was when I worked at a college. They did a they did a viewing uh, a screening of Robin Hood. But what they did was they brought in musicians to play the to play the score mm-hmm. on period accurate instruments. So Fun. you so you really got that medieval mm-hmm. sound to go with uh, that's cool to, to go with the image. Yeah, it was an absolute blast. I really really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I mentioned that. I saw it twice, obviously not the copy that you have, Justin, the like fully restored or at least as much as possible restored um, version. But the versions that I watched, um, they both had different soundtracks. And I think that's a really fun thing now with a lot of these silent films, you know, they're in the they're in the public domain. Uh, I think it's a fun way to kind of put your own spin on it, especially if you're a fan of, you know, the vampire genre, the horror genre, you know, but you, and you've got these, these, uh, this fun, these fun mixes of different songs and stuff like that to go ahead and kind of build your own version of, of the, of the film. It's, it's another, it's, you know, that art inspiring art. I really dig that, Um, you know, from the viewing of the version that you had at the live event, Justin, I'd I, the reason I asked earlier about if it's still available. I I want to get a I want to get a copy. Like seeing yeah. it, yeah, the mean, way it's the, supposed to be seen. Yeah, the way it's supposed to be seen is really really good. <laughs> it's yeah. really good. It is. So uh, and the score yeah. on that Eureka version is the original composed score. Obviously not a recording because it wasn't recorded, but it was a. Uh, it was an orchestra playing the original composition mm. that Hans Erdmann had written for Nosferatu. Yeah, yeah. Which is maybe one of the only home video versions that has that version of the score available. Yeah. And I mean, I mentioned Metropolis earlier. I actually mm-hmm. have the poster for Metropolis <laughs> hanging on the wall of my office. Like nice. it, it's a weird, it's a weird movie, but it's, it's oh, sci-fi it's it, it's and it's so cool. influential yeah I mean, yeah i really i mean that <laughs> i mean tell me george lucas when he, he created c-3po was not influenced yeah. by what's her oh, name yeah. maria yeah, or something. yeah absolutely yeah no it's, the name escapes me but yeah it's uh i i really dig it because it because they all have that sort of low budget skeleton crew very mm-hmm. diy type of feel and there's something very honest about that there's something uh, you can you can feel the passion of these filmmakers on the screen just they don't have anything they don't have a frame of reference yeah yeah they necessarily like like i mean the the cinematic medium is only maybe 30 years old at this point right yeah yeah. Uh, so they don't have anything to really like compare themselves to so they're just like fully freed you know yeah yeah, it's crazy. Like, I don't think I even had like this thought before. This is why you're a great podcast host, Justin. You start the discussion. And, uh, <laughs> but no, like literally sitting here, I was thinking like, what are the silent films I've seen? And Metropolis is one. And so I'm like, actually, I think it's all sci-fi horror that yeah. I could, could like rake it in. Like, I, I've obviously I've seen like Chaplin stuff, like yeah. some, some stuff with with that. But like 
otherwise it is it's hawks haxon it's uh uh a trip to the mood because mm-hmm. I'm a Smashing which is, Pumpkins fan. Which is also <laughs> George Melies, who we mentioned earlier. He did, you know, House of the Devil. A trip to the moon, of course, is his most popular, most well-known film. Yeah, and I knew it from, I just found it because of the Tonight Tonight video. Of course, yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, and then Nosferatu. I don't, uh, but what Todd was saying, uh, to his point, is that uh, yeah it, it is it is cool like you said like not a no frame of reference but also i think the spirit of silent film and especially like a film like nosferatu that you can really appreciate is the same thing we love about horror movies in general still to this day is especially like some of our favorites are low budget movies and people mm-hmm. piecing things together going back to sam raimi and the evil dead like people just like trying to pull together what they had to like make something happen and it almost feels like Nosferatu still has that same spirit. Like it just like some really wicked stuff that like, I don't, I don't care that it's a silent movie. Nosferatu has some creepy fucking stuff in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really does have some stuff that stands out still to this day. And, uh, and so props to those guys. Cause they were thinking way ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of those people who you were reading reviews of, they had issues with it like thinking it was boring and things like that. But I think that you have to, you have to meet a movie halfway. Yeah. You know, like you have to go into this knowing it's a silent film and, and watching it on its own terms, just like any other movie. And I think if you do that, if you give yourself over to that experience, then you can find a lot to enjoy about a movie that yes, there are antiquated things going on here. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it, I've seen, a decent amount of silent movies. I wouldn't call myself an expert by any means. I've seen a lot of Charlie Chaplin and I've seen several Buster Keaton. I've seen, you know, I've seen Steamboat Jr. in the general, like the, the most well-known Buster Keaton stuff. Haxon, uh, which if we want to get into further viewing, that's going to be my pick would be Haxon or Carl Theodore Dreyer, uh, who was a silent filmmaker, but he did a movie called Vampire in 1932, a year after the Bela Lugosi. Um, Dracula, although uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer is probably best known for The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is probably considered by many people to be the greatest silent film of all the time. The greatest, yeah. I've never seen it, but it's definitely wow. like always been like the silent film you need yeah. to see. So he did a vampire movie after that, which does have sound, and it's on Criterion. Criterion released it on, on Blu-ray and stuff, and it's on the channel, uh, so you can watch it pretty well. It's a, it's a very different vampire story than Nosferatu, but it's it's very, very cool. Uh, so I would I would definitely recommend that. Uh, but yeah, m- I think most of my silent movie uh, experiences also like you, Gary, with genre stuff, because genre stuff transcends time a little bit more than some other things do. And mm. it, when I say genre stuff, I am also including the Charlie Chaplin and and Buster Keaton stuff in there, because that not all comedy stands the uh, the test of time. Very true. That physical comedy, what they're doing in those movies translates very well. To to now as opposed to like a joke, you know, like right. a like a like a, a a a audible joke doesn't necessarily translate as well, uh, because physical comedy doesn't get dated, you know, like so watching somebody watching somebody tr- slip on a banana peel and fall down is going to be funny every century that humanity exists. Yep, <laughs> and yep. the same thing goes with horror. People are always going to be scared. People are always going to find things to be creeped out as long as as 
the sun sets and darkness exists, people are going to find things to be scared about. So I think that horror films and sci-fi films and comedy, even the silent stuff, ages much better than than something like Passion of Joan of Arc, which is an incredible film, but is more taxing on a lot of viewers because it doesn't have those extreme elements that some of these other ones do. Mm-hmm. So you guys, I know, so we've we've mentioned it several times during this. We did a live show, the first ever Cinema Shock live show a few weeks ago, and we showed Nosferatu uh, with our friends from Gut Punch Cinema. It was a great event. We had a great turnout. We were actually kind of shocked by the turnout. So (laughs) it was like it was probably two or three times what I think we were expecting. So it was it was really great. So if you came out to that, obviously, thank you very much. It was really it was a really fun time. But uh, in preparing for that, we I think we all watched Nosferatu multiple times, including at that screening, but I think we had all watched it at least once or twice before that. Uh, but before that preparation, had you guys seen Nosferatu before? Mm-hmm. Had you ever watched it? Oh, yeah, I had, for sure, yeah. Well, you're a horror guy, so that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I had literally, <laughs> like, I, I, yeah, no, no, I I definitely uh, seen Nosferatu, and I, I think... I think I like literally reviewed it on Letterbox the year before I saw. So oh like, yeah, you did. Like, like, you actually did. I remember reading it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you watched it like la- about a year ago, but like maybe during Halloween last year. Yeah, I think that's right. Nice. How about yeah. you, Todd? Had you ever seen it before? Was this the I, first time? I think this was a first viewing for me. Yeah, yeah. It's one uh, of those things where you see so much of the imagery that you maybe like just by cultural osmosis yeah that's what i feel like you've seen it i yeah and it seemed like every iconic because there's quite a few every iconic image that comes up you're like have i seen seen that yeah Yeah, like (laughs) well that's the thing i mean i think dracula even the character of dracula has been portrayed in popular culture probably more than like any other character I think Dracula has probably appeared in more stories than any other character in popular culture. I I was I was literally thinking about this today, too, is that, you know, we know Dracula, right? Like we know Bella Lugosi's Dracula and what we would dress if you were going to dress up as Dracula when we were kids. It's Bella Lugosi's Dracula. Oh, yeah. It's that version. But as I was like, has it come full circle that like. Count Orlock is the version of Dracula. I don't know because, <laughs> don't like, he's it... in SpongeBob. Yeah, like... <laughs> I don't think it's quite come full circle yet. I mean, Dracula, like, as an image, the Bela Lugosi thing is is the one that was created on stage by Bela Lugosi or or immortalized by Todd Browning in that film. That is the image of Dracula most people are familiar with. Even people who have never watched Dracula or read Dracula, like a child could look at an image of the Dracula. I mean, fuck, it's on fucking Sesame Street. The Count is based on <laughs> Bela Lugosi's Dracula, yeah. right? So, like, everyone recognizes Dracula, again, because of just pure cultural osmosis. Like, it's just everywhere. You can buy, go, I, I mean, one of the prizes I gave away at the at the event was a Pez dispenser Dracula, right? So, like, he's <laughs> everywhere. You can find Dracula on anything. Uh, but, but, yeah, most of the time it is that Bela Lugosi version, right? Uh, he's dapper, handsome. He's a he's a sex symbol. He is uh, clad in a tuxedo and a cape, right? But Nosferatu is different. Count Orlock, you know, the name Count Orlock may not be as known as Dracula's, nor is his image as instantly iconic. 
But Max Shrek's his take on the vampire has still managed to persist for a century. I mean, we are we we still see versions of vampires that are based on this movie that we talked about on the podcast, Salem's Lot. Oh, the character yeah. that that those those vampires are one hundred percent based on Nosferatu. Um, if you've watched what we do in the shadows, what's his name? Peter is that his name? Peter. He looks like this. He looks like Count Orlock. 30 Days of Night, those vampires look like Count Orlock. Blade 2, those vampires are based on Count Orlock, right? Like that version of this animalistic, this, this, like, this, this, he, he's not a seducer like Bella Lugosi. He is a monster. He's an, an a ghoul. He's an animal. He's, you know, uh, he's scary because yeah. of that. Yeah. Uh, and that version of the, of the character is very different from like the sexy vampire, mm. right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you had a better way to segue into this a little bit, but some of the stuff we read in reviews and that came up at our live show is that the look of Cal Orlock uh, leads into this anti anti Semitism, you know, from, from all everything I could read about this, I, I know it's easy to like attribute this to the filmmakers, but uh now was gay. Right. And, and, uh, you know, uh, so he uh, was a, he was so it, it, on that subject. And I think this is where you were going with this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, there's a lot of, there is a lot of like people who have interpreted this as anti-Semitic. Um, a lot of it's based on the appearance of Count Orlock, specifically the nose prosthetic, uh, th- that nose pros- that, that nose design, by the way, comes directly from Bram Stoker's text he he describes it in the book and that's what they did this sort of beak of a nose some people some people say it's stoker and these guys yeah like, but, they... but these guys if you think about these guys i mean henrik galin the screenwriter was jewish he's a jew uh, yeah. he's jewish yeah. he went into exile in switzerland when the nazis rose to power um alban grau fled germany to escape the nazis gustav von wagenheim who plays hutter uh, es- fled germany to escape the nazis Alexander Gernach, who played who played uh, Kanak, also Jewish, also fled Germany to to escape the Nazis. Uh, Ruth Lansoff, John uh, Gottout, who w- was Jewish, like all of them fled Germany. Almost almost the entire cast. The only one that I I, I think uh, of the cat of the main cast and crew who stayed was um, Wagner, the uh, the cameraman who ended up uh, out of desperation making propaganda films. For for the Nazis because he couldn't find any other kind of work, but oh, like Triumph of the Will that was another silent film we didn't mention. Yeah, we uh, won't. Yeah, that one's not as good. Uh, <laughs> but but by the time that by the time the Nazis came to power, Murnau was already in the United States. He had already fled Germany. He had already, or he had not fled Germany. He had he had come to the states for, to work, but he was already in Germany. But F. W. Murnau certainly did not sympathize with the Nazis because, as you said, Gary F. W. Murnau was gay. And thus, a target of the Nazis. <laughs> so he did not sympathize with them at all. There's, there's. I don't think there's any evidence that I've seen or read that would indicate that anyone involved in the creation of this film was anti-Semitic. I think that there were people that came after them, people, members of the Nazi party, who tried to propagandize Nosferatu as, as an bad. anti-Semitic yeah. work. Uh, and, and I get that because there's, there's this long-standing, you know, uh, story this anti-semitic narrative 
uh, re- involving blood libel and involving uh, Jewish people being seen as as rodent like and, and and things like that. That you can definitely see the parallels between Nosferatu and those anti-Semitic images of Jewish people. But I don't think that that was the intention of the filmmakers. Now, Bram Stoker, I don't know. I don't know what his intentions were. But I I, I mean, I, and I don't know F.W. Murnau's intentions, but based on the evidence, I don't think that there's anything that would prove that he was, that would even remotely indicate that he was anti-Semitic. Yeah, it, it seems like, if anybody, he would be very anti-dealing with that shit. Uh, yeah. So, mm. um yeah, and, and again with Stoker, I don't know. But and that Dracula, I think, was already God, if, if I'm not mistaken, he was already like in the land and talks about invading a new place or something mm-hmm. like that. So I could see I don't know. It it's it's tough looking back on, on yeah. that stuff. If, and if obviously we uh, can't say for certain at all with without a time machine. Uh <laughs> there's no way for us to know. Yeah. And even without uh, a time machine, if I could go back and ask FW Murnau, um I don't speak German, so it would, <laughs> so I don't think I can get an answer out of him. Yeah, I mean, even worse, it's it's always it's always tough because, like, I don't know. I love a lot of Lovecraft stuff, and that guy and is was, uh, blatantly anti-Semitic. <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a tough sell. <laughs> yeah, to any yeah. party, and mm-hmm. um, so you know, as a person, but yeah. Anyway, I I, I legitimately don't feel like though that the people. Like, I get how people used it, but I don't right. feel like Nosferatu was intended that way. I, I that's where I stand. I agree with that, and and based on all the reading I've done, which has been quite a lot for this episode, uh, just because it interests, it's very interesting to me. So I'm re- even reading stuff that I won't even mention during. I won't even get a chance to bring up during this episode just because it's so interesting to me. But nothing that I've read has indicated that that would be the case. Mm. I mean, it is, you know, when, when you're talking about Nosferatu, it's kind of hard to overstate the significance of this film. Like this is the, it is the father the or the godfather of every cinematic vampire that would come after, right? He's instantly recognizable, just like we said before, even in silhouette. Uh, and the film contains scenes that, you know, over the next, the course of the next several decades would become cliche in a modern horror film. You know, you've got that, the scene where you've got the local bar filled with townspeople warning our hero not to continue their journey. Like, I mean, you could point out a hundred horror movies that have done that. American Werewolf in London is the one that always comes up for for me. Uh, but you know, you walk into a bar and everyone hears that you're going to Count Orlock's castle, and they just stop and like the music stops and you know, everyone a, stares. A glass breaks, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's that scene. You've got the scene where. Um, You've got your stagecoach. They refuse to go past a certain point. They're like, we're not going past this point. Uh, or even the scene where Hutter cuts himself at the dinner table, uh, igniting a bloodthirst in Orlock is one that we've seen in nearly every vampire movie since then. Like, there's some version of that. I, I mentioned to you guys I was watching Twilight. There's That scene exists in Twilight at Bella's birthday party. She cuts it her, does. she gets a little paper cut. And, and Jasper, is it Jasper? The one from Texas? Yeah. Yeah, he like comes uh, after great. her, right? Yeah. So yeah, he's gonna he's gonna turn right around at Breaking Dawn. Now he's a war hero. So, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I I, I like Jasper. <laughs> I'm <right>. team. <laughs> I'm I'm team. For the record, I'm team Alice right now. Uh, three movies in, so uh, I have been team Alice since day one. Yeah, <laughs> Alice, Alice got it going on. 
Right. So, uh, she's also, by the way, uh, I could connect this. Hold on. Alice. Uh, she's in that Toby Hooper movie. Uh, the, wait, the actress? Yeah, the actress who plays Alice. She's in a Toby Hooper movie? Is it? Is it Toby Hooper? How could uh, it be? Hold on, hold on. Who plays Alice? Who? I, I'm going to do this live on the podcast. Who plays Alice Twilight? That is Al. No, uh, Ashley Green. Is that right? That sounds right. Is, is that right? You could just go to IMDb, Gary. Yeah. Uh, Ashley Green, Toby. Hooper, there's a connection here. I know there is. No wait. What am I thinking of? This is not. <laughs> this is not going well. <laughs> Todd, who's the guy who plays uh, uh, Chekhov in the new Star Trek? What's his name? Anton Yelchin. Anton Yelchin. He was not in a Toby Hooper movie either. What are you talking about? He was Hold in a on. Joe Dante movie, Bearing the Joe X. Joe Dante is who I'm thinking of. <laughs> bearing, uh, bearing the X. Bearing the X. Oh, is she I in fucked that? this up. Yeah, she's in that. Okay. She's fine as hell. She's the X. <laughs> uh, but, all right, well, I'll, I'll connect it to Toby Hooper in this way. Salem's Lot. How about that? Uh, wait, Toby, wait. Hooper, <laughs> Toby Hooper directed Salem's Lot. Yeah, we've already run up Salem's Lot. Yeah, so, I mean, you know. <laughs> Salem's Lot looks really like good. Count Orlock. Excellent content. <laughs> this is this is what the people pay to see. <laughs> but all of this stuff, all of these, like what we see now is cliches, right? The 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 stagecoach driver stopping the the townspeople in the bar, like all this seems like cliche now. But this was all new at the time, right? This kind of goes back to what we said before. There were no previous vampire movies to steal from. Uh, so I, I read his uh, Roger Ebert wrote a review of this for his like great movies series, you know, that he does mm. or did uh, in 1997. He wrote about Nosferatu. And I love this quote from his review. He says. To watch F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu is to see the vampire movie before it had really seen itself. Here is the story of Dracula before it was buried alive in cliches, jokes, TV skits, cartoons, and more than 30 other films. This film is in awe of its material. It seems to really believe in vampires. I so love that. I mean, and you can buy that because of the legend of Max Shrek. Yeah. Stuff like yeah, that, exactly. You know? Exactly. He's that convincing. Right. And, and the, the, you know, when Alvin Grau came up with the look of Orlock, he had to create that from scratch. Like he didn't have anything to really compare it to. I mean, obviously he he took some cues from Stoker's novel, but he took others from European folklore. Hmm. Uh, but the design that he created for Orlock is uh, wholly original. Like it, it, it has nothing that had been seen before. Now we've seen it done, like we've mentioned uh, several uh, iterations over the decades. But at the time, like this was the first time anyone had seen that. And I think that design is a big part of the character's impact. Uh, but also... Shrek's performance as directed by F.W. Murnau is really what makes it work because uh, he's creepy. <laughs> yeah. And, and to be honest, like there's even times where you can see that the look of Count Orlock, even if it's not a vampire movie, when they're trying to invoke 
someone who is creepy and you know slightly menacing you see some of these elements come out uh be it visual be it performance or whatever and i mean it just goes to show you like it goes beyond vampire films uh yeah this is this is truly truly iconic shrek does this thing where he moves in these slow stiff movements you know Mm. when when he's not standing just completely like creepily still and staring at you through a window or something yeah like, even then he's like in like incredibly uh effective mm-hmm. uh, and i and i can't say that many of the other performances in the film are um restrained in any way whatsoever <laughs> like they're all pretty <laughs> over the top uh but there's a nuance to shrek's performance here that is kind of rare to see in silent films, uh, films of this era, because everyone else is they're playing it to the rafters. Right. Yeah. Uh, the guy who plays uh, Gr- what's his name? Grenache, who plays Knock, uh, uh, like he is playing it to the rafters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like Big time. Um, I mean, there is a reason that the rumor that he was a real vampire was so believable because mm-hmm. you know, he is that effective in the role and he, he freaked people out that much i mean all of the memorable scenes in this movie involve shrek uh the shadow of the clawed hands crawling across the walls or my favorite sequence of the whole movie his voyage on the death ship on the the, the demeter or whatever they call it in this movie it's got a different name but that's my favorite sequence in the movie it's fantastic yeah uh, and it's so good and so scary you know and and then that there's that my favorite shot of the movie is towards the end uh, where he is, you just see his head over, over, uh, I want to say Lucy, but whatever, uh, Mina's, the Mina character, Ellen, over Ellen's bed. You mm-hmm. just barely see his face, like in the left side of the screen, and everything else is completely in shadow, and he's just kind of hovering over the bed. And it is a scary image. Yeah. <laughs> like it Bro, really is. I mean, I mean, Let's not forget the the stomping up the stairs, not stopping, yeah. but creeping oh, up the stairs. Oh, where you just see the, the shadow? shadow? Yeah. yeah. And how many I mean, times that's, has that That's been... everybody. That's like mm-hmm. Michael Myers. That's yeah. anybody. That's yeah. that. <laughs> creeping up the stairs. It is. It's, I still think of that to this day for my own stairs. And it's just like, I don't know. I Yeah. I, I thought of that when I was watching this. I was like, man, they... I know it sounds so silly to think like, oh, look at this foresight with these guys with this shot. But seriously, look at the foresight of these guys with the shot that like they got the creepy fucking Count Orlock shadow going up the stairs like that's a. And now you see that image and you immediately know Nosferatu. Right. Yeah. Like that's what I said before when he's recognizable, even in silhouette, you know, like the, the all the great monsters are. Godzilla. We've talked about that multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Godzilla, look at that silhouette. You know exactly who it is. Uh, and and for like a true monster, you it, to be truly iconic, like you can recognize it even in silhouette. And and Count Orlock is definitely in that category. You know, uh, I love I mean, the point that you that you made about the the playing it to the rafters. Like yeah. these guys, you know, used to stage productions or whatever mm-hmm. else they've been doing. But yeah, yeah, that is really cool to point out that but Max Shrek knows how Shrek to is played it. He's subtle. He's and, nuanced. Like, yeah. yeah, he is. Uh, of course. I mean, there are a lot of interpretations of Nosferatu as a metaphor. Um, one of the more common ones is that he represents the plague. 
that's an easy one since in the film he literally brings the plague to town with him. <laughs> so that's a pretty easy interpretation. Uh, remember, Nosferatu was released in 1922, just as the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 was winding down. So the people who saw this film during its original release would have known exactly what he represented, this the silent death who's come to town. Uh, he could also be a broader representation of death. Uh, you know, the death brought by the Great War, which Murnau served in and Albin Grau served in. You know, they were both veterans of World War One. Um, so that's something else that would have hit very close to home to German audiences in 1922. I mean, try to put yourself in that predicament. You talk about like uh, the meeting the audience halfway. But yeah, I mean, imagine being in that context and then seeing something like this. You don't have the Internet. You don't have you know, anything else to base this off of. It's the same as like, say, I don't know. I try to imagine when people saw Freakin's The Exorcist, you know, right. and you've grown up your whole life in this super religious household and then like somebody just presents it on screen for you and you've got no other basis yeah. except the legends you've been told <laughs> to go off of. So uh, just before we move on, uh, Justin, you mentioned when uh, Murnau started that uh, production company with Conrad Veidt, mm -hmm. um, that triggered something for me, and I probably should have mentioned it when you initially mentioned Conrad Veidt. But Conrad Veidt, the actor, was also uh, the inspiration for the Joker in the movie uh, The Man Who Laughs. If you Google yeah. image like Conrad Veidt, Joker you will be presented with nightmare fuel. It's an it incredible is... <laughs> piece of like makeup artistry. Yes. It really is. Yeah, it really <laughs> it's is. really it, cool. Yeah. So anyways, that, that was just, uh, you know, just a little aside there. I've already mentioned a couple of further viewing uh, choices of my own here. I, I mentioned Haxon and Vampire, uh, Carthur Dreyer's Vampire. But I, I think the other ones, if I... It, it, the obvious ones, I guess you would say, for, for if you wanted to watch something else that's more closely related to this film, I would say uh, Werner Herzog's 1979 remake of Nosferatu starring Klaus Kinski as Count Orlok, which is a very good, very good film. Nice. Um, or I think we've already mentioned it once, but Shadow of the Vampire from 2000, which is a fictionalized account of the making of Nosferatu, which stars... Um, John Malkovich as F.W. Murnau. Um, I think Carrie Aylwes, does he play Henrik Galline? Is that who he's playing in it? That does feel um, like, yeah. I mean, Carrie Aylwes is in the Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. No, he's also in Shadow of the Vampire. Is he? Okay. Yeah, cool, cool, yeah. Cool. am I crazy? I'm not crazy, right? Oh, no. Carrie Aylwes plays um, Wagner, the, the cameraman. Oh, okay. And cool. Udo Kier, the great Udo Kier, plays Albin Grau. And, and of course, Willem Dafoe. As Counterlock. Of course. I mean, yeah. he barely needed any prosthetics for it. <laughs> he, just he just showed up to set looking like that. <laughs> so, uh, they had to, but, they but, had to tone him down for Spider-Man. But in, in Shadow of the Vampire, basically it, it goes by that whole rumor that Max Shrek was an actual vampire. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a dark comedy. It's very, it's very funny and very clever. It's a really good movie. I would highly recommend checking it out. Uh, do you guys have any other films that you would recommend for further viewing? So for me, I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. But if we're going to stick with like vampire movies, I mean, uh, and, and try to stick specifically to uh, Count Orlock over here. I mean, I already mentioned Salem's Lot, but I feel like uh, 
Toby Hooper Salem's Lot. It's pretty solid. We've discussed that one already. Yeah, great movie. And definitely Count Orlock inspired. Um, there is, uh, this does not get enough credit, and I don't care what anybody says, but there is a film uh, called, it's based off a comic, 30 Days of Night. Yes. And, yes. and I actually, David Slade, really director of movie. Twilight Eclipse. I love that movie. And, uh, and uh, Arvid is a vampire in that movie and is, certainly based off Nosferatu oh yeah I know 100%. He is. Yep. and uh so I'd give that uh credit to and uh I don't know I mean yeah I, th- I think those would be the two I'll recommend right now I um 30 days of night is so great I actually got to meet the author Steve Niles, Steve Niles yeah yeah and could not be a nicer guy and it was so funny to I remember reading an art uh an interview with him and uh the interviewer also went on to uh interview other horror comic writers and the consensus was that when 30 days of night came out they all just slapped their foreheads of like why didn't i think of that (laughs) it was was, oh uh, it's certainly one of those ideas that you're like why how has this not happened Yeah, yeah yeah Uh, So for my pick, I went a little bit broader with my choice. This is uh, 1994. Uh, The author of the book is also the credited screenwriter uh, with a body count of 56. Stan Winston based the look of the charred corpses on archival photographs of the victims of the Hiroshima bombing when he was sculpting the rough models. Any guesses? I don't know. Trivia. I know he does. It's Interview with the Vampire. It is Interview with the Vampire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Good movie. I, yeah, I love. I love that. I, I and like... by the way, if you have not watched the series season is it good? one, it is good. It yeah, is legitimately it pretty it fucking good. good. I found it. I almost. I'd. I'll probably be watching that here in the not too distant future. Yeah. yeah. I. Yeah, I love the movie. So as a person who loves the movie, who was hesitant to watch the series, I can say like, okay, the Pretty series solid. like make, yeah, it's, it's like, okay, this is, this could be better. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like if, I, if they, if they play it out all the way, like, it's like, all right, they I, might win. I enjoy uh, when Tom Cruise is not the hero. And mm-hmm. so I I love him as Lestat. I think I love him as that's why I love him as Frank T.J. Mackey in Magnolia. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, or, or in Collateral, like as the villain. Like yes, good. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, the series you definitely get more depth with like vampirism and nice. Lestat not being a great dude. No, he's not. <laughs> not, he's not a great dude uh hot take from gary thank you <laughs> i'm just saying i don't know he said he enjoyed it more when lestat's not the hero and i'm like yeah. well he's, he's certainly in the when series. tom cruise it plays a villain not yeah. necessarily yeah i like yeah it. oh i got gotcha. you <laughs> yeah, okay yeah, yeah, yeah. okay i i I'm on, I'm on the same page now okay. <laughs> So although Nosferatu was not a commercial success upon release, critical enthusiasm for the film helped to put F.W. Murnau on the map. And over the next four years, he made seven more films, uh, the two most significant of which are The Last Laugh, released in 1924, and Faust, released in 1926. When it was released in the U.S., The Last Laugh uh, performed poorly at the box office, but it thrilled American filmmakers, including William Fox, who was the founder of the Fox Film Corporation, later known as 20th Century Fox. Uh, Later known as Fox News. 
Yeah, well, <laughs> sort of. Yeah. But William Fox offered him a lucrative contract and Murnau moved to Hollywood where he was pretty much worshipped by others in the industry. Fox introduced him simply as the German genius. That's how he introduced wow. him to people. Yeah, so, the, so Murnau was hot shit when he got to Hollywood. For his next feature, Murnau would be given a generous budget and complete creative control, which was highly unusual during this period of filmmaking in Hollywood. And he set to work on Sunrise, which was a huge hit with the critics. Uh, Robert Sherwood, writing for Life magazine when this movie came out, he said... Quote, the title of world's greatest director is applied to F.W. Murnau. Sunrise, to my mind, is the most important picture in the history of the movies. Granted, the history at the time was like like 30 years, but still, right. still high praise. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sunrise would go on to win the Academy Award for Unique and Artistic Picture, which is a you know something that doesn't exist anymore, but unique and artistic picture at the first ever Academy Awards. So mm -hmm. at the so this movie won a, an award at the first ever Academy Awards. It also won an award for Best Actress and Best Cinematography, and was nominated for several other awards. So it was like it was like the uh, I don't know the Titanic of the, I don't know that's a bad analogy, but you know, <laughs> it was a big deal. What I'm saying. But unfortunately, audiences kind of stayed away the dream from dream girls it. of its time. It was the dream <laughs> girls of its time. Uh, but audiences stayed away. It did not do great at the box office. And although he would make several more films, Murnau would never again be given the budget and artistic control that he had received on Sunrise. Uh, he made two other films for Fox before breaking his contract. His final film, which was made after that, uh, contract was broken was uh, Taboo, the story of the South Seas. And that was a collaboration with the documentary filmmaker Robert Flaherty, uh, who was well known as the director of Nanook of the North. Bernal, he used all the savings and earnings that he'd made in Hollywood to independently produce Taboo. And then at the last minute, Paramount saw an assembly cut of Taboo, and they liked it so much that they offered Murnau a 10-year contract with the studio. Wow. Uh, Murnau was ecstatic, and he began planning out his next series of films. But unfortunately, his story does not have a Hollywood happy ending. Uh, the New York premiere of Taboo was planned for March 18, 1931. F.W. Murnau died from injuries sustained in a car crash on March 11th, exactly one week before his final film's premiere. Uh, oh, that's geez. rough. Uh, yeah. I only have two fun points about that. Uh, what a fun fact search... about him dying is, is is fun fact. Is this fun? Fact? I don't know. Fun facts the great <laughs> point. But... Maybe. Facts. We'll just call them facts. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Sometimes if you search taboo on the internet, you're going to get like a totally different kind of thing. Like it's a different kind of porn. What? Search taboo, to... the story <laughs> of the South Seas. Uh, taboo, the story of the South Seas. Uh, no, uh, but Three weeks prior to this incident where Bernal died, I, I should point out, is uh, the February 1931 premiere of Universal's Dracula. Yep. So he got he he yeah. saw it. Wow. He saw it happen, at least. So he did. He did. I, wonder, like, what, I wonder what he thought about it. I do. I that That's kind of what I was thinking is like, yeah. I was going to say, well, he was riding around his car. Does he think about Dracula? <laughs> Maybe too much. <laughs> oh no <laughs> uh, for now uh, no it is sad to see that like this guy was apparently it is a weird thing that I haven't seen uh, Sunrise to be honest with you but it is 
interesting that like they're praising him as this important person and the most important picture in the history of movies and that sort of thing. Like that he actually did achieve that status at a certain point. Mm -hmm. It's uh I don't know. It's 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 crazy. Right. Hollywood's such a fickle bitch. And he was on the cusp of doing even more. I mean, imagine if he had made those movies for 10 years with with Paramount, uh, yeah. working in working in, you know, the sound era, what he could have achieved. Because yeah. he's a great director. He really he really is. He's a he's got a great vision. How old was he when he died? Is in his early 40s, I believe. Oh, yeah, he could have yeah, he could have knocked out another decade yeah, he was, of films. He was, still, he was pretty young. Jeez. Well, over the years, Nosferatu would go on to be appreciated as one of the most important films of all time, and there were so many factors working against its survival. Uh, the very fact that we can watch the film now, over 100 years after its release, is kind of miraculous, uh, because it's estimated that o only about 20% of the films from the silent era survived, often due to you know, just general lack of film preservation techniques uh, and even more often due to the flammable and explosive nature of the silver nitrate film that these movies were shot on. I mean, nit silver nitrate is highly flammable. Mm. Uh, Todd, at our live show, you brought up uh, Inglorious Bastards. If you've seen oh, Inglorious yeah. Bastards, like, the reason that uh, Soshana is able to so uh, succinctly burn down that theater is because she lights the film on fire because that film <laughs> silver nitrate is highly flammable it's oh, very yeah. dangerous uh so any silent film surviving is improbable and then when you factor in a court order for the film to actually be burned up and destroyed well i mean nosferatu like shouldn't exist we should not have access to it yeah uh but like the undead it has risen again and again to horrify new generations of movie lovers i'll be honest I was surprised at our live event when you asked who had never seen it. I was like, oh, we're probably going to get two or three. It was, it was a lot. It was most of the room. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of people in that room were, we had a lot of people who were younger than us, people yeah, in their yeah. like early mid twenties. Yeah. Um, I don't think I was them, surprised. Was like, I was like, I think these people are here for just the experience and they're, but I love that they were open to it. And yeah. God, if like, I don't know the reaction in that room was was people a having, lot of fun watching it with fun. people people yeah. were getting hyped over it like it was yeah. fun people were very much in into it you know like people were really into it which just proves that just because it's an old silent movie and a black and white you know vampire movie it doesn't mean that it has to be boring like just yeah just like i said before meet it halfway that's all you got to do yeah. right so earlier i quoted roger ebert's review but i'm going to quote it again here because he sums up Nosferatu uh, better than I ever could. He says, Nosferatu remains effective. It doesn't scare us, but it haunts us. It shows us not that vampires can jump out of shadows, but that evil can grow there, nourished on death. In a sense, Murnau's film is a, about all the things we worry about at three in the morning, cancer, war, disease, madness. Then he concludes his review saying, Nosferatu is more effective for being silent. It is commonplace to say that silent films are more dreamlike, but what does that mean? In Nosferatu, it means that the characters are confronted with alarming images and denied the freedom to talk them away. There is not repartee in nightmares. Human speech dissipates the shadows and makes a room seem normal. Those things that live only at night do not need to talk, for their victims are asleep waiting. Ooh, nailed it. Isn't that fucking good? 
Yeah. Roger Ebert was a good writer, right? No, Roger Ebert is just good. And props to Roger Ebert. Ebert was famous for a reason. Uh, I will just say, if I may, that also uh, fucking Count Orlock waiting on the other side of the door when you open it. Or yeah. sitting across town, staring at you staring through a at you window. Through <laughs> like, there were just legitimately, like, creepy images unnerving. that you... Yeah, unnerving things that you picture, like, you you know in the back of your mind are creepy, and mm-hmm. you can't quite place it, and then they put it on screen, and you're like, that's going to stick with me for the rest of my life. Exactly. Now I'm yeah. going <laughs> to think about when I'm standing in my window, is there some fucking person standing... Just- it's it's just uh i wish people could have seen that weird rat thing you just did to the zoom video that was my uh that was my count orlock impression my silent count orlock impression. it was great nice i'm gonna need todd to make a gif of justin bishop doing the count orlock to the window <laughs> oh man if only i had the buck teeth but i don't there is the the intellectual way of viewing this and there is also hey by the way they did some really creepy shots that are mm-hmm. going to be repeated for a hundred years again and again and a hundred more you know yeah. <laughs> uh well this was fun guys this is a fun time uh we this is the first time we've done a movie that's quite this old i would love to do more like 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 old classic horror genre films i mean and we will we absolutely will uh not our next series our next series is going to be very modern but but we'll (laughs) announce that later on uh but now uh we uh next week or next episode i should say we are doing a cinema shock roulette we're not gonna we're gonna not gonna deprive our listeners of a roulette episode just because we decided to do a simple little standalone film so Mm. we're gonna do a roulette episode and uh can i open the envelope well it's a spin of the will oh that's uh, right oh that's right yeah, we do, we do that's, what this, that's what this big will he- yeah we're gonna just do it on this episode we're just not we're not gonna worry about the bonus episode thing Let's okay just, okay yeah, yeah what do you think this big wheel here is for todd you just think i brought this in for, I, yeah for no, giggles? no you're right i forgot about <laughs> the wheel yeah yeah <laughs> rob on it all right todd spin the rub wheel. your face against it spin it with your face all right here we go my penis Always comes back to the penis with Gary. This is a Freud. It's a Freudian thing. I guarantee it. No, no, I have to talk up my penis because it's not existed. If I don't, did you spin the wheel, Todd? I wasn't paying attention. I did. He did. He spun it. It made the noise. How could you not hear the wheel, Justin? I'll I'll spin it again. It clearly sounded like the sound effect that you just made. Here we spin it again. I wasn't paying attention. All right, so we are. Looks like we're sticking into we're sticking with spooky season at least for one more episode because nice. we are talking about another horror film from 1977, a Japanese horror film. So not just a horror film, but a foreign film, Ooh. which I'm sure is going to lead to some fun. Somebody needs a nap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a movie from 1977 called Halsu or House. Ah, it is. Have you guys I, seen this movie? No. I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I saw this like with you somewhere. That sounds like this is the the type of movie that I like to show to people. This is one of those movies. (laughs) I feel like I saw this because we were at like your 
town home with john or something maybe yeah (laughs) then i was like what is this it is wild as hell it is if you've never seen Haozu, it is unlike anything you've ever seen it's a japanese ghost story but it is not like j like modern j horror stuff in any way whatsoever it is a wholly unique film that you honestly can't compare to anything else it is a it is a roller coaster ride of a film so uh, I'm very excited to get dig into the history of this film because I don't know a lot about the creation of it. So I'm excited to educate myself and then pass that knowledge on to our listeners. Yay. Exciting. So join us in our next episode. We'll be talking about how zoo. Nice. I guess that's all we got for it's this also, week, though, guys. It also pops Happy up Halloween. Like when you search yeah. it. It comes up as, as House 1977. House. Yeah. House. House. Well, I want to make sure I say House so people don't think it's House like the the 80s horror movie you know which is also a great movie but that's not the one we're talking about right right so all right so how's it next week uh that's all we got for this episode happy halloween everyone yeah where, where can y'all be found on the internet for our listeners i am at this is gary horde on all the social medias i have a wrestling podcast at tipw show on all the socials and uh i am part of the national wrestling alliance uh, it's at NWA on everything. So if you want to get into some wrestling, that's where you do that. And I'm working my way through the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order for now on my show, Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcasts and on all the socials at Computer Resume. And I'm at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, X, Instagram, Letterboxd, and D&D Beyond, as long as they behave themselves. How long does that joke go on? I'm just curious. I listen. They they burned me once, man. You know, is this, you know, well, that movie has like come and gone. Oh, it's it was a movie. great. It it's was a great the, movie. By the yeah, way. the movie. Yeah, the but, movie's fun. The movie's fun. I'm talking. It's the company. So it's you know, us third party uh-huh. people. Us third party people are uh, once bitten, twice shy. So. <laughs> Wow, we just took this reference back even further. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can find me at Justin underscore Bishop on Instagram and Letterboxd. The show is at cinema underscore shop. You can find it pretty much everywhere under that. Uh, You can also find all of our episodes as well as links to our Discord channel, uh, our merch, our T-shirts, all that stuff at cinemashock.net. Like, rate, review, and share us any way that you know how with anyone that you know. Until next time. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. It's oh, a, he's, it's, it's a, a silent. silent. Yeah, I it's get a it. Silent I see, what, you, I see yeah. what you're doing, Todd. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's okay. The, what oh. our listeners couldn't see was the inner title that popped up and said Johnny Hester. Yeah. <laughs>